Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 71 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. My name is Trevor Dame. The other voice you'll hear, as always, is Matt Feuerstein. We are the people that make Through the Years. You are our listeners, our deep vein thrombozos, our scarred babies. And if you want to know why we call our fans those things occasionally, well, then you haven't listened to every episode and you've got some work to do because I'm not going to tell you right now, Matt. But when you said the po- when you said the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor, I, like I've been listening to so much Doughboys lately that I really like truly expected you to say the podcast about chain restaurants. And don't you wish that <laughs> we was what we were doing that. instead? We could switch into that, although it's get we we lost a few years ago here. The where I live was the site of the first Carl's Jr. in Canada, and it was also probably one of the first Carl's Jr. in Canada to go out of business. So. But we could we could switch over. There's definitely some, still some options here. Well, I guess if you wanted it to only be the podcast about Carl's Jr., you'd be out of luck. But um, oh yes, definitely. But there are other chain restaurants. Mm-hmm. I know this because I listen to Doughboys. <laughs> Let's just plug that uh, for today. <laughs> Let's just talk about restaurants that used to be in my city that went out of business, like the Sizzler. Oh, that's fine. Um, <laughs> actually, there was a restaurant. It was like a. For some reason, there was a restaurant growing up where they had a burger called the Nash Chicken Burger. And to this day, I don't know why they called it the Nash Chicken Burger. But every time I ordered it as a kid, you better believe I was thinking about Kevin Nash. And I was like, maybe there's a 1% chance this is named after him. I'm going to piss off a lot of uh, ROH regulars here and say that uh, the very first cheesesteak I ever had was the one that they advertised on TV from Roy Rogers. Um, I had that a few times, um, so that that that'll upset the Philadelphians. <laughs> oh, great! <laughs> so, um, if you want to go back and hear, you know, what we're talking about with stuff like scarred babies, and believe me, that one is worth going back and hearing because it is a great. The genesis of that is, is great. I forget which episode it's in, but you know what? They're all great, and. So if you're obviously found us, so you've listened, you found one of our two feeds. You're either listening to us on the Pro Wrestling Only podcast feed, and if so, but you don't like the feed having other shows on it, which, you know, maybe you don't like the clutter, maybe you want easier access to every episode we've ever done, just search out there through the years. We have our own podcast feed, but if you're listening to the through the years feed, know that there's a feed on called Pro Wrestling Only with a bunch of other great podcasts. I've been re-listening to some old episodes of Where the Big Boys Play, which is kind of a show, you know, Matt and I were both fans of before this show, which is kind of like this show, you know, a standard wrestling review show, but about early WCW, and that show is still great all these years later. Um, and, of course, we have a, a YouTube. We, we put the shows up on YouTube, and, like, I think we're up to, like, maybe two or three people who listen to them on YouTube. So that army is growing by leaps and bounds, Matt, by at least 200, 300%. Um, but with, with that with that all said, we, there were, since we're covering a show that happened literally the day after the last show we covered, there was no news to cover that happened at the time between these shows. So we can go right to the show that we are covering today. The summer of the summer of punk continues, and that is means we are covering Escape from New York, which took place July 9th, 2005, at the New Yorker Hotel in New York City in front of a reported crowd of 600 fans. Although, as always, I always go just from the observer um, numbers on the crowd estimates, even though we know sometimes, you know, they could be off. But I always just say just be consistent with one. But I will say this was one where there was some fair bit of discrepancy because the Pro Wrestling Torch, I'll just read this quote, Matt. Um, 
Gabe Sapolsky was said to be visibly happy with the July 9th event, especially with attendance, which was estimated to be, be between 900 and 1,000 fans who were enthusiastic all night, reacting well to everything. So, you know, in the grand scheme of things, to like WWE, 300 fans would be like a rounding error. But to Ring of Honor, the difference between 600 fans and 900 to 1,000, that's a fairly big discrepancy. But Matt, what I really liked about that story is normally the torch they get just you know on the record quotes from gabe sapolsky i like that this time it was like a third hand or second hand thing where it was sapolsky was said to be visibly happy with the july event 9th event <laughs> i like the idea that maybe someone just caught him like dancing a jig backstage and like called Ke- wade keller was like gabe is so happy right now you won't believe it He's dancing. He's giving out coupons to Carl's Jr. Everything's going our way tonight. Like I, I just I th- what <laughs> Carl's Jr. <laughs> I don't think there were any Carl's Juniors in New York City at that time. Um, <laughs> well, then they don't know good food. Yeah. Um. But um. Um. Yeah. Just the idea of someone being quote visibly happy. Like maybe he just smiled <laughs> once. And he's like, hey, Gabe is smiling. This must mean we have nine hundred to a thousand people in attendance tonight. But you know, or I, I was there. I was there, you know. And I don't. I mean, I don't know what I'm. But I, I don't feel. It feels <laughs> like it was much less packed than it was the the next show in the same building. So I don't know. But hey, what do I know? Yeah, I think the Observer might have actually even said that maybe this crowd was down a little bit from the last show in the building. But yeah. e- either way, I I guess that opens up one of the things I wanted to ask you, Matt. You know, we've done. We've been on this journey together, bros for life, and. Uh, We've watched, you know, the first 70 – we've rewatched the first 71 Ring of Honor shows. I would argue that this show – this might be one of the hottest crowds we've seen yet in the in the first few years of Ring of Honor. This is like a top three. This might even be the hottest. I don't know. You think, um, you think this crowd was hotter than Manhattan Mayhem? Um, I'm not sure about that. You know what I will say about this crowd, Matt, is one thing I think was really impressive about this crowd is not only was it loud – but they never burned out. Like they started loud from the first match and they were still loud for the main event. Like, and we'll see in the future with Ring of Honor, there will be shows where even when the main events are really good, the shows will be long enough or have so many like action packed matches that the crowd will be kind of, you know, getting t- visibly tired. And this crowd, like credit to you and your New York reps, you know, Matt, you guys held through like the entire night, I would say. The New Yorker Hotel was such a special venue. Um, I went to all but one of the shows there. Um, the only show I missed was Manhattan Mayhem. And I went to this show and the other two shows that were in that venue. There were only four altogether. And I can tell you, like, at least from that moment on, there was not another venue that had the atmosphere of that place. Like, it, I mean, I, I, like, this is the second ROH show I went to. The first one was The Future Is Now. And, uh, it was, I mean, that was fun, but it was night and day, the experience being in that venue. And being at the New Yorker Hotel in that in that crowd, it it almost like like I remember telling people when I got back like about like you know what, what why I was so excited to be there, and I was like, and I you know maybe this is a cornball New York reference, but like I was like it's like being at the Rocky Horror Picture Show, like I you know for non wrestling fans like they could sort of get like that interactivity aspect of it, you know what I mean? And yeah, and like. That's how it felt. It really felt interactive and just so alive. Um, uh, I, and I was sort of like, man, if this is what ROH is like all the time, I'm just – this is like the greatest thing ever. It was not what it was like all the time, but <laughs> it was definitely like it all the time in that building. And um, 
Do you take any personal credit for that? Because you started showing up with The Futures Now, and this is your second show. So do you think you had something to do with this, Matt? No. (laughs) Not at all. I'm I'm pretty reserved as an audience member. Um, But – and still am actually. Less less than I used to be, but but definitely still am. But – yeah, I don't know what it was. Like I don't like because, like I said in the last show, a lot of the fans you would see at ROH shows from like in different regions. A lot of them are the same people. You know, it's not. Yeah. I mean, it's not like it's just a completely different group of people. Like I, I, I estimated, Green Lantern like, fan is still in the front row. You know, yeah, in a yeah. lot of these places. Yeah, I estimated like twenty percent of the crowd like is the same in the Long Island show and the New York City show. I don't know if that's exactly right, but I think it's a pretty safe estimate. Um, so I guess that other eighty percent makes such a huge difference in terms of the vibe and stuff because, yeah, I, or I don't know if it's also the acoustics in the place, you know. And, and there were yeah. sho- there were shows at um, the Manhattan Center Grand Ballroom and the Hammerstein that didn't have great reactions, but there was never a show at the New Yorker that didn't. Yeah, there might be something to that acoustic thing because I was, you know, listening to the other podcast that we referenced a lot about uh, Ring of Honor and honorable mention. And I know Jeff Schwartz was mentioning how he thought the New York New Yorker Hotel. There was just something about the way the sound even bounced, you know, around. And for those who haven't seen the shows in the New Yorker Hotel, you know, it's got a balcony. It's a pretty, you know, very tight fit with the ring and the fans. Like there is something about it that I could see, like the sound feeling like it's just bouncing around right, right back on top of you. So it, maybe even that helps a little bit with it. But I would also say just the crowds were really good. The only thing I will say, and some people might be annoyed by this, I did not mind it, but I know when we started doing through the years, we were always like, you know, it was very much just cheer and boo crowds. And we were like, when are they going to get really chant heavy? Because there's a certainly a time. And, you know, there's been slowly more chants in Ring of Honor during this period, as there was in all indie wrestling. But I would say this show, not only were they one of the best crowds, they were also one of the most chant-happy crowds, I think, because they had, would they really count with a lot of different chants. And, you know, I don't think they ever took away from the show, but these were definitely people into coming up with various things to say throughout every match, or a lot of them, and oh. sometimes even, as we'll see, homophobic things. But hey, Although we still have not had our first ROH This Is Awesome chant, have we? Yeah, I don't think so. We've had match of the year chance, I believe. Well, so that that went back to like the very beginning, but yeah, um, but no, um, yeah, no. This is awesome chance just yet. I think we'll probably get them by the end of two thousand five, but I'm not positive about that. But um, yeah, there was um, there was one match in particular that um, I think made this show stand out from a crowd reaction standpoint. I'll cur- I'm curious to see. We'll find out later if you yeah. agree with me about which match it was. But I remember it as the match that really solidified my live experience as being like, wow, like this is so cool. Um, There's a match in my notes where I've written down the story of this match is the crowd. So I yeah. think we'll have the same one, but we'll find out as yeah. we do the show. Yes. Um, and we open the show backstage with Colt Cabana. Colt tells us he's not doing Good Times Great Memories right now because he's focused on tonight's European Rounds match with Nigel McGuinness. Uh, at this point, Austin Aries walks in to interrupt him mid-promo. Colt says what they had in the past, their feud, it's over. And But Aries is like, I just want to know what's going on with CM Punk and the world title. Colt says that's Punk's deal, not Colt's. He just wants to focus on his match tonight. Just leave him out of it. Aries says Colt should concentrate on Punk. Tell Punk to get his head straight and do the right thing. And at this point, Aries leaves. Colt references Spike Lee because of Aries saying do the right thing. Great move. And says they're going to have to reshoot this promo later because he's not in a good mood now. That's 
I wonder how many times that movie's been referenced in wrestling. It's one of my favorite movies. If you have not seen Do the Right Thing, I mean, not that I'm telling people things they don't already know, but if you have not seen Do the Right Thing, you need to turn this podcast off and watch that movie. That's an excellent movie. Not just an excellent movie, an excellent movie. If you want any movie that really gets across the vibe of like a hot, sticky summer in a city, and maybe during the summer you want to escape that with your entertainment, but I mean, it's it's not just a great movie on a variety of themes and levels, but even just – a movie that makes you feel like summer to me and, do the right thing is one of those movies and it just thematically holds up so well like it, it it almost seems like like prescient like the way that it it addresses issues that are i mean i they're just still so relevant more than uh, more than 30 yeah. years later anyway yes sadly <laughs> talk about tangents but, uh, from, from movies that deal with like a Racial tension to our opening match. The Dixie and the Ring Crew Express of Denmarcos defeated Lacey's Angels of Cheech and Deranged along with Vordell Walker. And they uh, won their match in 11 minutes. The Dixie and the Ring Crew Express that way. That is, they won in 11 minutes, 23 seconds, when Marcos pinned Cheech after he hit the senton off of Dunn's shoulders while Dunn was sitting on the top turnbuckle. Uh, Matt, what do you think about this opener? This turns out to be, I believe, Vordell Walker's final Ring of Honor match. So, one again, one we have now seen the entire rise, but that wasn't really a rise and fall of Wardell Walker, which is stunningly quick, considering how much kind of hype he initially came in with. A lot of these guys are pretty much done at this point. I mean, they, they uh, you know, a few, most of them have a few more matches left, but like. Yeah, Vordell's done after this match. Deranged at what has like maybe two or three more matches in ROH at this in this run. Dixie also another one or two. Dunn and Marcos even are gone like by like not too much longer from like six seven months later. Like it's it's weird. Like like these guys are just it's like the end of an era coming up. But you know it's actually interesting watching ROH at this point because there's like a lot of new eras all the time. Um, you know, with this is like you know the summer of punk is sort of its own era. The period right after that. The period after like it's just. There's a lot of um, rebirth, I guess, in this era that we're we're covering now. But um, yeah, uh, one first thing I wondered when I watched this, like, is Vordell Walker a heel in now, or was this just like random randomness, like just like this is a random pairing? Because like he was teaming with Samoa Joe um, um, and Brian Danielson just a few shows, you know, a few months earlier, a few shows for him because he hadn't been on that many, but. I guess they didn't really think it through enough to say whether or not he's a heel, right? Like, it's just, he's, this is the team he's on, you know? <laughs> uh, Prezak was kind of hinting on commentary that maybe, like, Lazy's Angels were, like, trying him out. I believe I wrote down my notes, and Prezak says on po- uh, one point in commentary, he says, Vordell is grasping at straws here. <laughs> just basically saying he's doing whatever he can to work his way, but he literally uses the phrase grasping at straws, which, knowing this was his last match, I was like, oh, that's pretty on the nose. Yeah, for, for real. Um so Lenny Leonard, by the way, is on commentary, and he's actually on commentary for almost the whole show. Um, he on, only the the last couple matches uh, does not feature him on commentary, so he really was was thrown in here. And I and I thought, you know, he 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 had a pretty good showing for himself, wouldn't you say? Um, all, yeah. all in all, for a first show. He- I think he's definitely letting Prezak take the lead on just going through the backstories, you know, because he probably, like he said in the, in the current interviews, that like he only had watched like the last three months of Ring of Honor DVDs. But no, I I think he's. Per- I mean, I know he feels his early work in Ring of Honor wasn't good, but I think you know it's especially for the standard of Ring of Honor commentary, it, it's 
pretty good, you know. Yeah, I thought, I thought he's you know already one of the best Ring of Honor commentators by this show. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, I thought you know what was fun about this match was mainly the crowd. Um, you know, like they like you said, a really hot crowd. Like this really felt like the you know the hot opener that you want on a show like this. You know, it was lower card guys doing lower card stuff. But it was fun, especially I thought the early part of the match. I think was the most fun part. Um, um, there was a part early where um, Marcos is getting the advantage on Cheech, so Cheech tells Marcos to tag in Dixie, and Marcos does it. And I'm just thinking, like, I wouldn't let a heel tell me who to tag. You know what I mean? I'd be like, hey, no, you're the bad guy. I'm not going to do what you want. But um, <laughs> but they do, you know, they do a bunch of of wackiness. They do this one wacky thing where. Dunn and Marcos grab both of Cheech's arms and air guitar them, and then Dixie jumps on Cheech's back and does his own air guitar, and the crowd goes pretty nuts for that. Um, and um, Marcos does this big, long, spinning head scissors on Walker, and the crowd's going nuts for all of it. Um, Cheech uh, even hits a, uh, a Kenta-style Busaiku knee early in the match. Um, and I'd say, actually, as far as like the way Walker looked, I feel like this is probably one of his better showings. I mean, you know, it's in a <laughs> yeah. in a six person tag, like you know, it's easy to just get in and do what you do well, and then get out. Um, but like, you know, he does some cool stuff, like where he picks Dunn up in a wheelbarrow and kicks him in the chest while he's doing it, and then wheelbarrow suplexes him over his head. Like that's pretty cool. Um, meanwhile, Deranged is very excited when he gets in, and. I don't know if, if I just didn't notice on the last show, but this felt like he had gotten a haircut just since the night before. Um, but, you know, that's a completely unimportant point. Um, but um, he, uh, two nights in a row, he does his big running head full of steam chin lock. But the crowd, I think, popped even more for this chin lock than the night before his crowd. They even did like a holy shit chant for his, his chin lock. So that's always fun. Um, but, you know, they, they, they keep going um, in this um, – in this mode, doing their fun spots, um, I you know I I say once we get to Prazak and um, and Leonard, we don't really have as many funny commentary quotes, but you get a, the occasional one. I guess every commentator has them. Like at one point, Prazak says Vordell is quote quite possibly the most powerful man in this matchup, and I was like Qu- uh, quite possibly like <laughs> who 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 would even be the competition for that? Like uh, I guess. Dixie? I don't. I don't know. Dunn? Who? Who would be the Dixie second most powerful person in the match? Cheech? I. I don't know. Yeah, but quite. Quite possibly, it's Wardell Walker. Um, but um, the um, but yeah. So they 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 go through their stuff. Um, Dunn hits a big elbow on Vordell. So he he's gotten like he's gotten beat on for a while, and the crowd chants big time for the hot tag. But this is where the match starts to be like kind of not as good. Like instead of going for the hot tag at that point. Dunn just picks up Vordell and chops him. And so Vordell gets to just do more offense, even though, like, at that moment, the crowd was really, like, raring for a hot tag. Um, so Dunn continues to get beaten on, and he eventually whips out a last ride powerbomb on Derange, which, I don't know, that I don't think he does that move so often. I was pretty surprised by that. And then he tags in Marcos, and I feel like it was a pretty wasted hot tag because, like... The moment was too late, and Doug and Dunn did it kind of nonchalantly. So Marcos tagged in like he had been hot tagged, but the way the tag was gotten to was not that hot. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, but you know, he does his house full of fire. They do the assisted slice bread on Vordell. Um, 
uh, Lacey's Angels do the Doomsday Ace Crusher on Marcos. Um, Dixie comes in, does a bunch of big moves, and Vordell cuts him off with his swinging Uranagi thing, but the Ring Crew Express break that up. And the Lenny, Vortex. The vor- yes, that's right. Um, and, and even Lenny Leonard says he doesn't know who the legal man is anymore, and uh, I don't think anyone does. Um, so the match is like kind of messy at this point, and Marcos, he head scissors Cheech into the turnbuckle, then the Ring Crew Express hit the assisted senton onto Cheech off the top rope for the win. Um, yeah, I thought this match was a lot of fun. I thought the early part especially, I feel like the final segment broke down a bit more than you like, but you know, the crowd was so hot that it carried it, I think, to a more – I think the crowd carried it to seeming like a better match than it was, um, but it was still fun is what I would say. Yeah, I, I agree. I thought this was, you know, a good like three-star little fun opener. I, I feel like we've seen a couple openers recently in Ring of Honor where they um, they were kind of maybe a little more reserved kind of openers, the kind of opener where they're decent fun matches, but they're not like super exciting necessarily. They're more just like well-constructed kind of more mild-mannered second-gear matches. And this was more of, you know, that's one good way to open a show, but this is another way, which is, you know, more of, it wasn't quite as crazy as like your average scramble or crazy spot fest. They adhered to tags most of the way through the match, but like it was still a lot of the guys you would see in those kind of scrambles, you know, doing a lot of just, you know, no real story, a bunch of action. And I was going to ask you, so I'm glad you said, I was going to ask you, did you think this is one of Wardell's best um, performances of Ring of Honor? So I'm glad you said that because I agree with you. Not that there's a ton of stiff competition there. And I also think where Wardell benefited here is he got what I think is a plum role in a, ma- in, in a match. Gets to be a base in, a little bit. Yeah, to, to, I think a, a really – not necessarily – I mean I don't want to – wrestling is tough, but I think a relatively easy, simple role that's that's really – I've seen a lot of guys you know like knock them dead with is when you're in a match with a bunch of smaller, more flippy-do guys and you're the one guy that either is known for being a bit bigger or stronger or have stiff offense. Quite possibly and, like the you most said, powerful get, person in the whole match. <laughs> it may be mad. We're yeah. not sure. Yeah. But um, but but yeah, like I feel like Wardell, he really got to stand out being the one guy here who's throwing stiff kicks. And, you know, he does the three, the rolling Germans and and even, you know, that vortex, which is supposed to be his finisher, the uh, that spinning Uranagi slam. And I was also going to ask you, is that the first time he's gotten to do his finisher? <laughs> Did he only get to do his finisher in Ring of Honor in literally his final Ring of Honor match? In fact, I think that's the first time we've ever heard of the name of it, which Lenny knows because Lenny's been calling FIP, which Wardell's been having, I think, getting more competitive matches in. Yeah, I I, I don't remember seeing it before. I mean, I, we, could, we could certainly be wrong about that, but um, I, I, I don't remember per, personally seeing it in ROH before. But yeah, so um, yeah, it's one of those. It's always one of those sad things when you know a guy's on his way out of Ring of Honor, and they then actually have like a better performance than they've been having that than the ones that they've been having that probably got them losing their job. Like, not that Xavier had some good matches, even in, you know, like with the Paul London matches. But I remember like even the final few matches of Xavier or guys like that, where we'd go, oh man, he's actually having some you know fairly good performances now. But we know that now it's already kind of over for him. And I didn't feel it was quite on that level, but it was like, well, this is probably Wardell Walker's best performance. Yeah, I mean, it was it was it was probably his best. But like, it's not like it was like, wow, he just no. he turned heads with this. You know what I mean? No, like, it was no, just it no. was it was a solid little deal. Yeah. Um. 
I, I also also thought, you know, Dixie isn't in this much very much. He's in a bit at the start and a bit at the end. But I actually thought he looked fairly good. Another guy who's on his way out. I really like that that where he does the fist drop off the top, but he kind of rotates, like kind of starts it with it almost like his back turned and then he's rotating on the way down. I thought that was really cool on a top rope fist drop. And also I noticed on the entrance, the same girl from the previous night who tried to hand Lacey money, like she was a stripper or something and Lacey throws it at her. You know, she's there again. She does the spot again. You know, good worker. She made the double shot. Now you were wondering how many people went to both shows. That woman definitely what a, made both what shows. A, what a team those 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 two are, Lacey and that, <laughs> and that fan. Um, but yeah, like you talk about Dixie being on his way out, but like literally all of them are yeah. just pretty much on their way out. Yeah, we're getting a real. I mean, it's the end of an era, you know, in a way, because really the era of like, you know, the special K guys and is going away, and also the era of, you know. The Ring Crew expressed Outcast Killers. We just saw the end of the Outcast Killers basically on the last show, on the main shows. Yeah. And, you know. And the next match, we're going to see another team that is not long for ROH. Exactly. But with with this being Vordell Walker's uh, last appearance in Ring of Honor, I thought I'd bring up something because it's related to the show. And I'll explain more how it's related to a little bit later. But first, I'll give you one example how it's related to the show, which is right off the bat. Let me just see if I. Put my quote down here. Okay. The Observer wrote, during the New York show, when Vordell Walker came out, fans were barking like Rick Steiner, which was meant as a positive and not as a taunt, since Walker gets the same reaction at some shows in Florida. So I didn't hear this on the show. I mean, maybe this was just, you know, not audible or not in what was the footage that was there. But for those who don't know, Matt, do you remember the Vordell Walker-Rick Steiner situation? No. Okay. So Vordell Walker... He isn't, you know, like, I don't mean to put the guy down because from what I've heard from people that still watch, like, he's actually a fairly good wrestler. He's still wrestling, I believe, on the indies to this day, you know, for various reasons. His Ring of Honor run did not work out. But if you ever, like, look up Wardell Walker, by and large, he's known for two things. One, this Ring of Honor run that didn't work out. But most importantly, he's known for an incident he had with Scott, with Rick Steiner right before the show. And, Matt, I did some research I found a MikeMooningham.com article on this, and I'm only using part of the article, and there will be a Ring of Honor path to the end of this as well. But um, I want to explain why people were chanting Rick Steiner at this guy, and this is probably in some ways, this might be the thing that Vordell Walker is most known for, like when you do Google searches and stuff. So I'll just start reading this bit of the article. Vordell Walker doesn't like bullies, and he's nobody's whipping boy. Rick Steiner, one of pro wrestling's resident bullies, found those facts out the hard way when he allegedly took liberties in the ring with the 24-year-old Walker at a recent independent show in Ocala, Florida. The two work, the two grapplers were on different sides of a tag team match, pitting Walker and Dustin Rhodes against Steiner and Eric Stevens. Now, Matt, I, before I read this next part, I just want to say I love these next two or three sentences I'm going to read. You know how sometimes people do like the, uh, the machine learning algorithms will be like, hey, we fed this computer, you know, 30,000 songs worth of lyrics, and then we asked it to write a song, and isn't it weird that it kind of works and it kind of doesn't? The, the paragraph I'm going to read you next, Matt, is so generic pro wrestling and its purest form. This, to me, is like if you asked a com- if you fed a computer and out, like, millions of wrestling shows and said, make up a wrestling show, because listen to this card that this match was on. 
The Southeast Championship Wrestling event, billed as, quote, Day of the Legends, and held in conjunction with a Marshall Tucker Band concert, drew nearly 2,000 fans and featured Dusty Rhodes against Jerry Lawler in the headliner, along with a contest billed as the final bout for the Rock and Roll Express. To me, Matt, that, that, that's just wrestling. It's, you got it all, Matt. 2,000 fans, so it's outdrawed every Ring of Honor show so far. It features the Marshall Tucker Band. You've got two veterans teaming up with two indie guys and Eric Stevens and Vordell Walker. You've got Jerry Lawler and Dusty Rhodes still wrestling in 2005 in a headline match. Again, drawing more than pretty much any indie at the time. And most of all, you've got the final match of the Rock and Roll Express who are still wrestling 16 years later. Like, to me, that is amazing. The last the last part is, is the best part, because it's like just yeah. one of those classic, like, bullshit last matches you know and i wondered the rock and roll express thought that was going to be their last match when they said so you you never know every once in a while the answer is yes every once in a while the answer is no if, if someone had said you know this obviously won't be their last match and they'll be wrestling in 2020 you know 2020 i'd be like you know what yeah i can believe that if they were like and you know what one of their matches is going to be in 2020 they're going to be wrestling in new japan in america teaming with hiroshi tanahashi i'd be like what the fuck and that was like yes. the selling point of that show i saw i was at that show <laughs> oh my god you were i forgot holy shit at the one at the uh the one at the hammerstein yeah and um uh, yeah, and they did their stereo dives in tw- in, t- in 2019. <laughs> they did that, yes. When Matt's at a wrestling show, big things happen. I think that's the lesson of tonight's episode. But going back to the Mike Mooneyham article, but the match that had, the fa- that had most fans talking after the show involved Walker, a relatively unheralded but rising star who has drawn strong reviews for his work in Ring of Honor and TNA. Uh, okay, Mike, you're, <laughs> little, you're stretching it a bit here. Um and surly veteran Steiner, who at one time was one of WCW's top acts with Brother Scott and financially benefited from a near seven-figure contract doled out by close friend and company president Eric Bischoff. According to numerous first-hand reports, Steiner shot on Walker during their first contact in the ring and delivered a stick, stiff kick to his face, busting open the lip of the four-year pro Walker not sensing any line of communication with his opponent, reta- who re- he retaliated with some shoot kicks of his own, a guillotine chokehold, and an assortment of moves from which Steiner had trouble escaping. Quote, I spit up some blood and I knew this guy was trying to really fight me, said Walker. That's when I charged him and backed him up against the ropes, hooked him, and got him in a takedown and started wrestling him. Walker said he worked a series of chokes on Steiner but would always let him go. I wasn't really trying to pound this guy. I was just trying to get him to chill out. I got control of him numerous times, and finally I got his back and started working the chokes in just to let him know we could wrestle or continue to fight. Rhodes helped break up the first exchange by asking Walker to tag out. Walker said there was no fighting between Steiner and Rhodes. Later in the match, however, the 41-year-old Steiner attempted to powerbomb Walker from the ring apron through a table. Walker, fearing what Steiner might have in mind, refused to go up for the move. Hell no, I said. That's okay. I'm going to let you do that to somebody else, said Walker. At that point, he says, a frustrated Steiner began cursing, claiming Walker, quote, couldn't work, unquote, and motioned for Walker to tag Rhodes back in. Steiner and Rhodes battled to the back and into the concession area, leaving Walker and Stevens in the ring, clueless as to how to salvage the disjointed match. Walker says that's when he decided to confront Steiner and challenge him to a fight, if that's what he preferred, with Steiner reportedly cursing and walking away from any further damage. I took my gloves off, ran into the back, threw some fans, and shoved Steiner off a table, said Walker. Listen, if you want to finish this right now, let's go on and fight and do it right now, Walker said, he told Steiner. This is me and you right now. 
He cursed back at me and called me a few names. He and Dustin officially fought off, said Walker. Although Rhodes pinned Steiner after a chair shot for the finish, Steiner broke from the script and held up his opponent's hand in the air after the match, soliciting an uneasy ovation from the crowd. It ruined the show for a lot of fans who knew what was going on. I tried my best to save the match when it was Eric and me in the ring, but for the most part, it was ruined from the get-go, said Walker. So this was the thing. It it was kind of the talk of like, not a huge talk, but kind of the talk of like wrestling message boards for a week or two at the time. So Matt, where it all comes full circle in doing my research for the show, going back to The Observer, I couldn't believe this part right here. Dave wrote in The Observer, quote, Gabe Sapolsky did try and put together a Vordell Walker versus Rick Steiner match together, but Steiner said he didn't want to give Walker the credibility after how he publicly described the incident. Walker isn't exactly knocking them dead here, Dave finished the article with. So, man, I thought this was pretty crazy that, one, Gabe, like, was trying to book Rick Steiner for a Ring of Honor match, and two, like, to me, doesn't that seem like the actions of a of a booker that's like still trying to get this guy over? Are, when, you, sh- well, are you sure that he was trying to book it for ROH, or could it have been for FIP? I guess you're right. Although you know what, Matt? I think when I looked up cage match at, when I was researching this, I think Vordell's done an FIP too. Oh wow! So it is kind of weird to me that like Gabe was trying to book a match for a guy that essentially. Like maybe he thought that was his last shot at getting Vordell over. Maybe was just trying to play off of the. Uh, the Rick yeah. Steiner controversy, but this is also not too long after the whole Daniel Pewter Kurt Angle thing that got you know Pewter uh, to be almost pushed in WWE before all the veterans were like, yeah, we're going to destroy Daniel Pewter. Um, yeah. So there's there's some there's some similarities between those two stories, but yeah, the most surprising thing to me about that whole story was actually the fact that Walker just felt so comfortable talking about it to Mike Mooneyham, like just like so openly. And again, like I was saying, this is something he became known for because he would talk about this in a few interviews at the time. And you, like, I'll say this: if you guys just search like Vordell Walker, Rick Steiner, this column comes up. I didn't read like half of the article because he goes through through into like trying to talk to Rick Steiner backstage and all this stuff. But again, this is just Vordell Walker side of the story. I believe Raven. I, I did not look this up. I do not do this much research, but I believe I heard somewhere in one of the Secret of the Ring shoots Raven did for Ring of Honor. He kind of shits on Vordell Walker for this incident and defends rick steiner but from all the stories i've heard it seems more people seem to believe wardell's situation um, version and also that rick apparently maybe does have some of a reputation at the time for maybe taking liberties with young guys in matches and wardell happened to be one of the few guys he took liberties with who had a real shoot fighting training background who decided i'm not going to put up with this and turn into this whole thing but um that brings us to the second match of the show, which we did not see. It did not make on the DVD because much like the last show, this had an appearance from Matt Stryker, not the one with the eyebrows, the teacher who became the uh, the play-by-play announcer. But there was a match on the show that we do not see. <clears throat> Matt Stryker defeated Mike Cruel. Um, the Observer wrote about this. Stryker got a huge reaction based on all his publicity. Fans cheered him as there's something noble to the cause, I guess, of lying on the job and calling in sick to do indie dates. Fans chanted things like, you got screwed, and social studies at him. Stryker beat Cruel in a decent match with great reactions. Fans chanted, please come back at Stryker. Matt, do you have any, I mean, it's a lot to ask. It's 16 years ago. Do you have any memories of Matt Stryker versus uh, Mike Cruel. Yeah, I mean, I remember thinking it was fun. Like, I, I remember thinking like that. Like, Stry- Stryker definitely was very over. And I have to admit that at the time, as a young 
man. I was on Stryker's side in that whole thing. It sounds really bad now, but like at the time, I was like, yeah, cool. You know, he's following his dream. So what? He takes some days off from work. Um, but like that is how, so I think that's probably how most of the crowd thought about it. And yeah, he was really over. He did some cool stuff in the match. It wasn't like this big, long back and forth match, but it was totally over. And yeah, I wish I could see the match again to see if it held up. But like, I remember it being good and fun. Um, and I remember Matt Stryker making a good impression. So, uh, I don't remember too many of the details. I remember there was this one move that he did where like he got into this weird leg grapevine where like both guys were sort of upside down and like, and then Stryker would like slap cruel repeatedly in the face. Like, uh, I don't know, probably if you saw a lot of Matt Stryker matches, maybe that's one of his signature spots. I don't know, but that got a big pop. As far as actual moves in the match, that's pretty much the only one I remember. But I do remember it being fun and uh, got over pretty well. And if people are wondering why Matt Stryker was getting chance of like social studies and stuff, we go on to the previous episode because we talk about Matt Stryker there and go through why he kind of had this weird breakout 15 minutes of fame for basically being a teacher who took sick days to uh, – work wrestling shows and got caught and fired. But um, we join Colt Cabana again backstage where he's ready to do take two of his promo. He starts the same promo he did earlier in the night when Samoa Joe interrupts this time, asking Colt what's up with his boy punk. Colt again says he doesn't know. He's not taking the plunge for this one, he says, which is a fun choice of language, the plunge, knowing that's Punk's finisher. Joe says if Colt stays on Punk's side, he probably will be taking the plunge for this one. Colt says he's over it. He walked, and Colt just walks away. He says he's not doing a promo anymore. He's just pissed off. So That, this is like, that reminds line. me of the end of an I think you should leave sketch, where he's just like, forever, chuck it, I'm done, forget it. <laughs> like That's a, a very common way that they end some of those sketches. <laughs> But yeah, so we're just continuing the storyline here of, um, you know, everyone's basically, you know, Colt's still a face while Punk's a heel and everyone's basically badgering Colt being like, you know, what's up with Punk and Colt's basically having to deal with all of Punk's shit, all the fallout from this. But uh, still disappointing that Colt kind of had to, you know, he was going away at this point to UK. So he um, he misses um, a lot of the storyline because it would have been a fun to see how that develops. Uh, you know, I know it's really nobody's fault, but. You know, it was, I feel like this was an interesting angle where everyone's mad at Cabana for what Punk is doing and Cabana's trying to distance himself. But, you know, he doesn't really come back until Punk's pretty much done with the angle. Yeah. I, I believe he misses the next two shows, I think, because he goes on the yep. uh, UK tour for a month. So yep. um, that brings us to the second match on the DVD, third match on the show. The Ring of Honor tag title match, the Carnage crew of Logan DeVito defeated BJ Whitmer and Jimmy Jacobs in 14 minutes, 11 seconds, when DeVito pinned Jacobs after hitting the second rope spike pile driver. So yes, in fact, this was a title change, a shocking upset title change. The Carnage crew win the titles from Whitmer and Jacobs. Um, I would say from BJ and Jimmy's end watching this match, this felt like just a pretty standard middle-of-the-road performance from them. and They didn't even do probably as many of their bigger high spots as they would normally do. But from the Carnage Crew's perspective, I think watching them, you could definitely tell this was like, they knew this was probably one of the biggest matches of their careers. I felt like they, uh, you know, they did pretty much as much as they could. The only big move of theirs that they didn't do was the Carnage Plex. They did, uh, you know, they did not only the, the second rope spike pile driver, they just did a regular spike pile driver, which they had BJ kick out of for a big near fall. Um, DeVito did his big fat guy standing drop kick, which is always cool, which he doesn't do, you know, on every show. And then on top of that, then later they do the doomsday device variation where Loke gets a guy on his shoulders and then DeVito does the same drop kick from the top rope, which is even cooler. 
and I just felt like they were working hard. You know, they did a little bit of crowd. It was this is a mostly a pretty straight up wrestling match. It's not like a Carnage Crew like plunder brawl. Although they do brawl a little bit on the outside, and BJ Whitmer takes a suplex on the uh, the metal ramp. And there's a big table break bump near the end where BJ's standing on the top rope, and he gets shoved off and he falls through the ringside uh, timekeeper's table, and that's what takes him out of the match. But I would say like um. This was a – I would call it a pretty standard undercard tag, but those few big spots I just described, I would probably raise it up again to like maybe a three-star special. And uh, yeah, the crowd I do think was legit surprised. Um, I, I think this is a note I have for a later show, but I think Gabe has said that his 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 um reasoning for having the Carnage crew win the tag titles here was basically he just thought that – People didn't believe that BJ like the. I guess he felt that basically the tag title scene had gotten kind of stale, and maybe people didn't think a mat like that they could lose in a match like this. So he had them change. He changed the titles, and it's funny because you could say, "Oh, Whitmer and Jacobs hadn't held the titles for very long," but um, I was when I think about everyone they beat, they had kind of already run the table, Matt, because they had beaten Lacey's Angels, they had beaten Dunn and Marcos. They had beaten um, the Second City States, not of Colton Punk, but of A Steel and Punk, and they had pinned, actually, Punk took the fall on that one. They had beaten Samoa Joe and Jay Lethal to win the titles. They had beaten Roderick Strong and Jack Evans. Like, if they had also beaten the Carnage crew, like, they had kind of cleared out a lot of the available, even makeshift teams. I mean, they could have kept throwing teams together. So, in that sense, I could kind of see why you're saying, well, we kind of have to freshen this up somehow, even though the Carnage crew will not be holding these titles for very long. But what did you think about all this? Yeah, and it kind of doubles as like a thank you to the Carnage crew, right? Which I guess we'll talk to talk about more when they have their rematch. Um, but yeah, this match, um, it certainly wasn't a great match, but I think it was better than I would have expected. Um, like just if I saw this pairing, I don't know. Would you agree with that? Like, like that the match like was better than you would think this particular matchup would be. Uh. I thought it was a, maybe about what I, th- I I feel like those the bigger spots in this were bigger than I thought I would have seen from a match like this because again I felt like the card crew were really trying hard to pull out everything because hey this was their moment you know yeah this is their match yeah so there there is a story um you know which is like at the beginning of the match the Carnage crew tries to wrestle and in fact at one point Devito is like doing an arm ringer on BJ Whitmer and yelling, I'm a wrestler, goddammit, at the crowd. And the crowd reacts with like a holy <laughs> shit chant um, for the arm ringer and, and the yelling. Um, and like it doesn't take long for it to turn into more of a brawl, like certainly not a carnage crew plunder brawl like you said. But like they throw them to the outside. They're clearing off tables. You know what I mean? They kind of make um, – they make uh, Whitmer and Jacobs wrestle their match. So like that, and like that leads them to winning, um, which I, you know, I think, you know, is, is a solid way to tell the story. Um, there's also a, um, I don't know, quote unquote fun spot <laughs> where Loke grabs Jimmy Jacobs arm and yells New York city and then uses Jacobs arm to pantomime, to pantomime Jimmy, um, jerking him off, <laughs> which <laughs> I, I think they stole that spot from um, Masawa and Kobashi versus Kawada and Tawei match. I'm pretty sure. Oh, that's a, that's a classic spot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but who's doing what? Um, but, well, Tawei's got the arms to do the jerk off. He's so lanky. I mean, he, those arms are made to do a jerk off spot there. Good. <laughs> 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 um, but, um, 
But yeah, there was uh, there was also a, a line from um, Leonard that I thought was funny because he describes Whitmer versus DeVito as the wrestler versus the brawler, which you know I guess is true. But it's also kind of funny considering Whitmer's most famous matches in ROH by far are like these big time brawling matches, the ones that yeah. he's already had and the ones still to come. Because um, you know, if you think of Whitmer's most famous matches, you know, you have the one from Death Before Dishonor, two thousand four, with uh, the Second City Saints. You have the you know the ROH for CZW stuff, the Cage of Death, the barbed wire match with Necro Butcher. You have the uh, the cage match with Jimmy Jacobs, the tables match with Brent Albright. So it's not like Whitmer is not a brawler, you know. Um, but in fact, his brawls are probably more famous than the Carnage Cruise brawls. Um, but I know I'm, I know I'm spending a lot of time on a throwaway line. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I thought the story was okay. The match, the match ended up being okay. And again, the crowd I think elevated it. Um, you know what I mean? Like, like it made the match seem better. They were they were excited yeah. for it. Um, which I bet in most venues this ma- this particular match would not get that much of a reaction until the ending. You know, but instead they make it feel like it's a big tag team, tag team title match. So good for them. Uh, the match was okay. I, like I said, better than I expected. And. It certainly was an upset finish. <laughs> you know, you can't say, yeah. like, especially being there live, you cannot say that anyone saw this one coming. So, I guess if you value that, you get that, and the and the crowd reacted aptly for that sort of finish. Yeah, the crowd definitely gave like, oh, we're shocked, and you know, I, I think people, some people popped, and you, I did hear a few people chant bullshit because I think the current crew were an act that always had at least a few detractors on Ring of Honor because yeah. they didn't really look or work like the rest of the roster. Um, Dave wrote in his notes from this show in the Observer. He wrote, "Crowd didn't see crew the, didn't see crew as worthy champions, and were surprised at the switch." Well, so was I. I mean, again, it was surprised. I don't know if the crowd. I mean, this isn't like the crowd does not turn on this. I mean, again, you hear a few, maybe a few people are dissatisfied, but there's also people cheering. And yeah, there's definitely you know, a, I think there's Jeremy definitely a pop. Shocked. Yeah, there's a pop for yeah. sure. Yeah. So I don't know how you get crowd didn't see them as worthy champions. Well, you know, it's like from D- Dave just has to go by what like any random person who sends in a report <laughs> exactly. says. Like like when I sent him incorrect information that he published many years ago. <laughs> by mistake, not on purpose. <laughs> so yeah, you're not sabotaging him, just to be clear. Um Next up, we have the Ring of Honor pure title number one contendership for corner survival match. Uh, Jimmy Rave defeated Alex Shelley, Asriel, and James Gibson in 22 minutes and 9 seconds when he pinned Asriel after he hit the Rave Clash. So before the match starts, just – well, actually, right after the match starts, technically, just as the bell rings for the match to start. And by the way, this is Roderick Strong was originally in Alex Shelley's spot. Why, you're, why that's going to change, you're about to find out. Because right when the match starts, the lights go out. Soon a spotlight turns on to show that CM Punk is in the balcony, mic in hand, wearing dress clothes. And uh, Punk says, let's go, Gibson, just patronizing him as the crowd cheers and jeers him in equal measure at this point. Uh, Punk says he fully intended to challenge the winner of this four-corner match for a title shot tonight. But since Gibson stuck his nose in Punk's business last night, not once, but twice, he doesn't feel like giving him a shot. We get a CM pussy chat at this point. And then Punk points out that Gibson's win-loss record lately isn't great and calls him a loser. He mocks Gibson as a Coors-drinking, four-wheeler-riding, varmint-hunting hick. Um, the crowd at this point starts saying, shut the fuck up at Punk. 
Punk says Gibson will never be Ring of Honor champion and goes on to say that, well, Jimmy Raven and Asriel are great competitors. Tonight he has his eyes set on Roderick Strong. He points out that just weeks ago he called Strong the future of Ring of Honor in this very building. But back then when he did that, the crowd chanted, please don't go at Punk and even thanked him with tears in their eyes. Uh, Punk says, I'm not done with Strong. I'm, I'm going to beat some respect into you tonight. At this point, Punk kind of stumbles over a couple of words and the crowd gets off and starts chanting, you fucked up. Punk just waits it out and then says, tonight, Strong goes one-on-one with him again, except this time it's a non-title match. And the crowd boos this until Mick Foley appears from behind Punk. Foley soon is choking Punk over the second floor balcony and he, he you know, gets the mic. He threatens to throw Punk over the balcony, saying that when he hears the words non-title match, he feels like splitting a skull wide open. Uh, Foley says Punk should ask himself one simple question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do ya, Punk? And you, you had to know Foley was just playing that line in his head for at least 24 hours. Um, I was going to say at least Punk, like two – I was going to say like at least a year when he first came to <laughs> ROH probably. <laughs> Uh, so a panic CM Punk agrees to make tonight's match for the title. Foley tells him to have a nice day, and he releases the choke. So at, at back in the ring, James Gibson's really intense at this point. He's just yelling encouragement to Strong to, like, go to the back, get ready, you know, beat that guy, take the title back. He sends him to the back to prepare, and Rave then at this point jumps um, Gibson from behind to start the match. And within the first minute, I would say, of the of the match, Alex Shelley walks to the ring. He jumps on the apron. He officially enters the ring. Uh, enters the match, gets a big chant for showing up, and that brings us to uh, the match itself, Matt. So, Matt, what do you think? Well, you know, we've seen a bunch of, you know, a few, feels like James Gibson's done a million four-corners matches lately. It's probably only been two or three, but another four-corner match with James Gibson and another match that he he does not win. Uh, What did you think about this? Well, I'll talk about the promo first, Um, which uh, is to say, like, you know, the night before CM Punk gave these amazing promos, just super memorable, this promo was – he was certainly good, like, and he got the point across and the Foley thing was fun. But I would say it's not even close to what we saw the night before in terms of quality or, like, memor- memorability. Um, I don't know if, if you agree with that. Like, it's it's much yeah. more forgettable than that than those promos. Um, the, the first night was telling a story. This night is just setting up a setting match, match for the main event. Exactly. Like, yeah, the story is already told. The other thing I really didn't like about this promo, nothing that Punk did, it was the editing or the – the camera decisions or whatever it was. So Punk was sitting there, standing there in the balcony, talking to James Gibson, talking to Roderick Strong. And you would think they would cut to like those two guys reacting in the ring. But instead, they just fixed the camera on Punk the entire time when there was all these reactions going on. And I thought that really took away from things. Um, You know, like I wanted to see reaction shots and you didn't get any. Um, I don't, and it seems like a small thing, but to me, it just it really hurt the vibe of the promo. Like I remember being there live, and I, you know, you watched both. You know, you watch Punk in the balcony, you look down at the wrestlers in the ring, especially Gibson. He was very animated. And actually, when the when the promo finally is over, and you cut to back to the ring, Gibson is basically in Strong's face, like giving him this really angry pep talk, like you go kick his ass, you take that title. You know what I mean? And like, yeah, Gibson seeing more of Gibson reacting would have made the promo better. Um, so, um, so I thought like the presentation of that promo was kind of disappointing. Um, I also thought the match was not really my thing. Um, I, you know, those, you know, these, these four ways are hit and miss. You know that I liked the last one from the Simon Sign of Dishonor way more than you did. 
and mm-hmm. um, I, I'm probably I would expect that I'm probably lower on this one than you. I, I just I, the wrestling was fine. I just thought it was too long and like non-dynamic. Um, you know, you, you still get a lot of like Nana dragging Chung by the hair so that they continue that whole storyline, you know, and they don't really move it forward, but they just continue to put some, um, you know, put some focus on it. You, we get another one of those cutaways to Matt Hardy's eyes. Um, but this time it didn't seem like an editing trick. It just seemed like they needed to put it in there somewhere. Like it seemed like when they got back to the match, they had not <laughs> edited a bunch of the match out. Um, yeah. I kind of wish they would have, not because the match was bad, but because it just, it was just too long. Um, I, I, I just, cause they just, they were slowly doing like, um, you know, working over Azrael. Um, what, what it really kind of, um, came down to was Raven Shelley kind of turned into a, a makeshift tag team. You know, Shelley was a baby face in this match. Um, he, when he, when he appeared on the apron, he got a huge, uh, reaction. You know, he would be milked the crowd a little bit, but the way they worked the match, I, first of all, I did think that Shelley looked the best. Like, I think he did a lot of cool stuff, but they ended up basically working a tag team style match where it was Raven Shelley against Azrael and Gibson, where Azrael was the guy, um, who was the face in peril. And they worked over his his midsection for a while, real slowly. Um, and Azrael would try to make comebacks, and Gibson would break it up. And you know, like Raven Shelley did, like a double team suplex where they dropped Azrael's stomach over the top rope, and then knocked Gibson off the apron, like you would do in a tag team match. Um, and eventually, uh, Gibson. Uh, like the, the the way they get to the quote hot tag is actually pretty cool because Raven Shelley work on Azrael some more and then all of a sudden Gibson just he's like I've had enough he jumps into the ring attacks both of them throws Azrael into his corner and tags himself in and the crowd pops big for that um, and Gibson you know he goes he goes crazy hits a neck breaker um, Gibson uh, Gibson moves when Shelley tries to elbow him and Shelley elbows Rave and drop kicks Shelley. Um, he hits a re- Gibson hits a really really nice top rope superplex, and then he goes right into the front guillotine choke on Rave, and Shelley breaks that up. So Azriel kicks him out of the ring and does a flip dive onto him, and then Rave and Gibson are trading strikes. Rave hits the gonorrhea, gets a two count. Rave goes to the Rave clash, but Azriel comes in with a springboard drop kick to break it up. Um, uh, Azriel tags himself uh, tags himself back in, does his kick combo on Rave, which was much better than last than the one on the night before. If you if you were listening to our um, Sign of Dishonor show, you might remember that I uh, said that Azriel's kick combo did not look very good. This one was much better. Um, they do a few more, you know, back and forth spots. Um, eventually, um, as uh, Rave gets a roll up on Azriel. Uh, and then Azriel tries to roll through himself, but Raves turns it into the Rave Clash and gets the win all of a sudden. Um, I just, I just didn't think it was very exciting. I thought it was, it maybe five minutes, six minutes shorter would have been better. Um, you know, the storyline will with Shelley and uh, Rave will pay off in a few shows, so it was setting something up. But this was not one of my favorite um, four ways. Um, you mentioned some homophobic chants. There was a chant at Jimmy Rave's direction that says, Jimmy likes balls. Um, and then a Jimmy swallows chant. So a bunch of homophobia in this match, but maybe they meant he likes basketballs and he swallows his, um, uh, vegetables that his mom makes him eat. I don't know. Um, but, uh, yeah, this, uh, this match was, was not my thing. I, I'd say, um, 
my least favorite match of the show so far, even though technically it was probably the best match of the show so far. <laughs> I thought it was the uh, the least entertaining. I agree. This is my least favorite match of the so- show so far. I wouldn't say it's much worse than the last two matches because there's some real, you know, there's some good technically proficient wrestling here. But, yeah, it's just too long and there's just too much downtime. And you, you missed the the worst Jimmy Rave chant. There was also literally a musical chant, homophobic, a musical homophobic chant, Matt, where um the crowd at one point goes, Jimmy sucks a lot of dick. Oh, the dude a day. And I was like, I'd be impressed if it wasn't homophobic because I was like, you're getting inventive here, but yeah, that the um, EC, ECW would do stuff like that too. The 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 uh, the Camp Town Races style yeah. uh, chants, yeah. So, um. Yeah, like like you said, th- this match, you know, people who have listened to the show a long time know that, you know, occasionally I like a four way, but a lot of them I feel I don't like. And one of the sins or one of the the ways a four way can kind of go wrong to me is something that happens in this match, which you already mentioned, which is <clears throat> the guys just decide to work it like a tag match rather than a four way. Because remember, all Ring of Honor four ways, with rare exceptions, were first fall wins it every man for themselves. So. A tag match is all about you beating a guy up, the guy getting no offense back, and you tagging in and out with a partner taking turns beating him up. Now, in a tag match, that makes perfect sense because you're both on the same side. If one of you wins, you both win. But in this match, Azrael, for like a big chunk of the match, is just getting beat up, you know, beat to crap, making no comebacks. And Shelly and Rave keep tagging in and out, working together, and the psychology makes no sense. So I was getting really annoyed, and then I remembered... This is actually kind of smartly, um, and for somewhat by for Ring of Honor standards, somewhat subtly hinting at a future development that happens in a couple shows. Where I mean, at one point, <clears throat> pardon me, um, uh, Dave Prezak on commentary even asks, like, "Why is Alex Shelley working so much with with Jimmy Rave in this match?" And I thought I liked it because he said that once, but then they never belabored that point. Which again, for Ring of Honor, is like rare. Like, if this was, you know, we don't hate Gabe's commentary as much as a lot of people, but if that was Gabe on commentary, it would have been, why is Alex Shelley helping Jimmy Rave? There's no way those two could ever join up and form <laughs> a team together. Like, he would have just, you know, gone so far in the opposite direction, it would have become obvious. Where, with Prezak, it's one little offhand, like, well, that's weird, and then he just leaves it at that. And, um... I felt this match was pretty boring until the last third, until the hot tag you described where James Gibson comes in. And from there, I thought the match got more exciting. Um, you know, in the first two thirds, uh, Rave and Shelley, you know, they do a decent job of working over, uh, Azrael's midsection, you know, tossing, like even with, um, Rave grabbing like a leg and an arm and just yanking him into the, uh, the turn, the, uh, ring post and, throw him over the turnbuckles and stuff like that. But it's just, it was also kind of boring at the same time. But the final third does get more exciting. Azrael gets to do a couple big dives. And it's just good action, I would say, in the final third. So the final third salvages, I think, the match somewhat. But I also felt kind of bad for Azrael watching this match because like you described, you know, the big thing about getting beat down a match is you get to make the hot tag and you get to make a little comeback. And Asriel doesn't even get to make the comeback because basically James Gibson makes the comeback from because like you described, Gibson finally just gets pissed off. He runs in the ring, beats up Rave and, and Shelly, Beals 
uh, Asriel from one corner of the ring to his corner, walks back over the ropes, tags himself in, and then starts the hot tag where I was like, poor Asriel gets spends most of the match getting beat up, and then he doesn't even get to make his own comeback. I, bad, I, I felt, bad for Asriel, but a really cool spot for Gibson. Yeah, it was simultaneously the coolest part of the match, and also something I felt bad for one of the guys for. Um, but yeah, so so you know, I kind of got weird mixed feelings on this match, but it all adds up, I think, to having basically the same feelings as you. The other th- the thing I want to ask you, Matt, is I feel like I've done this probably four or five times where I am so trigger happy on this, where I keep going, oh. That was the first roll of toilet paper ever thrown at Jimmy Rave. I've said this probably four shows. Each time you correctly point out, no, I think that was just a white streamer. That was just a pink streamer. Matt, I really do think Green Lantern fan threw a roll of toilet paper into the ring for this match. Am, am I wrong? I, I, I keep saying it's the first time, and you keep then thinking, oh, it can't. It's not. I think it was a roll of toilet paper. I'm not sure, but I think it was. I will go back and look right now because I uh, I don't remember seeing it, but I'm not going to say that you're wrong. I might have just missed it. Was it at the beginning? It was, at the begin- it, was, it was during his entrance? Yeah, I, I believe so. Okay, and uh, he throws it back out. Like He gets angry. He, he grabs it and he throws it back well, out. Well, he, so, does do, well is, he does do that with the streamers. He's been doing that yeah. all along. Throwing back out. Like, the streamers thing like led to the toilet paper thing. Like, that was the, the streamers yeah. was the gimmick first. Like, people would throw streamers at him. And like, whereas normally people would react positively to streamers, Rave would react negatively and throw them back. Um, and then eventually he did a promo where he's like, don't throw toilet paper at me. And then suddenly people would throw toilet paper. Yeah. So I am um, – okay, I'm looking right now. And okay. I could not tell what that was. I don't think it was toilet paper, but I could be wrong I guess is what God I would say. Damn it. I I will find well, – sooner or later, there will be toilet paper, Matt. There will be toilet yeah, paper but But, but I, you don't believe me. Rave does a promo that tell, that basically tells – the like, in like late in 2005, telling the guys, telling the fans not to bring in toilet paper. And that's when they start bringing in the toilet paper. But do, do, isn't there toilet paper thrown once – at least once before that? Like that's him encouraging it once it starts because he knows that's going to be a great thing for his character. I I, th- I think it happens before that promo at least once, doesn't it? I don't remember, but it is possible. We'll see. I mean maybe someone that smarter – someone with a better memory than us will can write it in uh, through yes. the ears at gmail.com or we give all the contact information at the end of the show, but – well, I'm, we'll find out eventually. But, but, anyway, but I, I, I just want to make clear: just because he's throwing it back and getting mad, that doesn't mean it's toilet paper. Like he was doing. Yeah, you're that. right. He was doing that for a while with the streamers. You're right. You're, you're absolutely right. That which is why I brought up because I wasn't sure. So I, I trust your judgment more than my own. Matt, well, honestly, I, I'm, I'm just on, going on by, many things. I'm going by my memory, and yeah. I, you know, I could be wrong, but that is how I remember it. I do not remember there being um, toilet paper thrown. Um, yeah earlier i guess is what i would say um so um moving on to something that could that could have used a toilet paper because it is shitty hey oh after the match a jubilant uh, prince nana raises jimmy's hand in victory he grabs the mic and he tells us that tonight the nbc will party like it's 1979 uh jade chung starts clapping nana gets mad at her for clapping he tells her that her job is to be a footstool a footstool and that's all nothing else why are you clapping Nana says he's going to show the fans a trick he taught Jade Chung. He asks Jimmy if he remembers the bunion he had on his foot a couple weeks ago. At this point, Nana then tells Jimmy to take off his boot and his sock, and he tells Jade he's going to make her do what she's been doing every night. 
Um, Nana says at this point, he tells the crowd that Jimmy has athlete's foot and in addition to a bunion. So Jimmy clearly not practicing good hygiene at this point. He dude, you know, take care of your feet. Um, uh, Nana then calls Jade Jackie Chan and tells her to kiss Jimmy's foot. She's hesitant, but she eventually leans in to do it. And at that point, Rave just grabs her face and grinds it into her foot, uh, into his foot. Chung stands up. She's disgusted. And as Nana and, and Rave are laughing, she's behind them. And you can see Jay Chung getting pissed off. And she actually rears her hand back to slap him. This is the first time in Ring of Honor we've actually seen Jade, like, not just be something other than completely subservient, actually, like, get angry. And then as she's raising back to slap him, Nana turns around. She basically crumples back to her knees in fear and despair. Nana laughs. He pulls her around by the hair. He actually kind of kicks at her even. And the crowd chants asshole, and they all go back to the back together. So uh, the thing I thought that was funny, or maybe not funny about this, Matt, was we had just seen a show ago. They had done a whole segment where they had said, you know, Nana treated Jade Chung horribly, and it was so gross, we can't even show you what they did. Well, that's why we're editing here on the show. This show, like, when you do that, I realize they're doing that to try and sell how horrible Nana is to Chung, but when you do something like that, then it creates this weird implication that everything you see from this point on, Ring of Honor's kind of okay with, which is weird. Like, yeah. like they cut out what, what was on the last show, but apparently they thought this was okay then. Yeah, I, on, on the episode that, of an honorable mention that talks about this, Shane Hagedorn sort of says, like, maybe it was just the reason they cut out on the last show was really just so they didn't have to show an Outcast Killers promo. Um, yeah. But it's also possible that they were just like, they just really tried to fig- had to figure out a place to shave time. And that was where, exactly. they, did it, where they did it in this, they didn't need to on this show. Um, but yeah, no, you're right. Like, if the, I, I don't think that what happened on the show before was any more horrible than this. Um, but it actually did have a more important angle. Um, Although maybe this angle is more important because Jade Chung was starting to stand up for herself, um, and they were foreshadowing the eventual turn. Um, but yeah, uh, like I said, several more months of this. Um, yeah, it's yeah. I, I I'm looking forward to when they get past this whole angle because it does not play well at all anymore. <laughs> <laughs> if it if it, um, I mean uh, that implies that it ever did, but it didn't. So. <laughs> That brings us to the Ring of Honor pure title match. Samoa Joe successfully defends the title, defeating Austin Aries in 17 minutes, 10 seconds. Uh, before the match starts, as Todd Sinclair is explaining the rules, Prince Nana walks back to the ring and he grabs the mic. Nana offers Aries long limousines, jet airplanes, and any woman in the world he wants. So he's literally quoting Ric Flair here. If he just joins the embassy, he'll give him all of that. Aries rejects him. Nana just is unfazed. He starts bragging about all his wealth, all his riches. So at this point, Aries snatches the Mac, the microphone back, and he tells Nana slowly, he goes, I have more important things to do. And then he tells Nana, go to the back and draw my bath water, and maybe we can talk later, which is like a big, ooh, oh, snap moment. He's, you know, saying Nana's line against Nana. Nana's pissed off. He storms to the back. The crowd chants, you got served. So... Again, we're starting another big angle here, and I think this is not even the first time we've started an embassy feud by having Prince Nana basically comes. I think he did this with a – I forget – oh, it was, the, it was the CM Punk feud where CM Punk had just wrestled somebody. I forget who. Nana comes to the ring and like offers the guy a slot in Generation next. The guy turns it down. Punk laughs, and Nana gets angry. So they're going back to that well of Nana gets pissed off because someone rejects him or laughs at him. Boom, we get an embassy feud. But anyway. Yeah. And, 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 Aries, and Aries tells him to draw his bathwater, which is 
it's see it's turnabout because Nana always tells people to do that for 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 him. Yes, and uh, Matt, um, I want to have first crack at the match after this one. So we're gonna switch things up a little. You're gonna get to do the first crack at this match too. So um, this is the third match these two guys have had in eight in seven or eight months, or actually fourth, the third that we've seen because these guys did the title change at Final Battle 2004. They did the uh, third anniversary week show, which was the rematch where uh, Ares retained. They did the uh, empty arena match that was filmed just for a do or die release of mostly pre-show matches. And that was supposed to be like the big match, exclusive match to get you to buy that, that we have not watched because we don't cover the do or die shows. And then this was the fourth and I believe final match for a while between these two. So, you know, what did you think about the match? And also... You know, how's it stack up? Because this is, you know, this is the fourth time these guys have wrestled in less than, less than a year. So what'd you think? Yeah, so the first match between these two guys Well first of all, we did we didn't I didn't watch the empty arena match, did you? No, I have not. Yes. Yeah, so um so I can really only compare it to the two that were in front of crowds. Um The first match had the emotion. You know, it had the um it had, you know, Joe at the end of his long title reign, Aries sort of being the underdog, even though he was the heel, and that rising action at the end of the match where the crowd was suddenly like, oh shit, and then this incredible explosion at the finish. The second match had the character work of Aries kind of being a bit of a chicken shit um, and sneaking away with the title at the end. Um, this match didn't have the character work. It didn't have the emotion. This match was much more just about action. You know, it was just a, it was it was a fast paced like all action kind of match. Um, and um, I'd say it was it felt like the least um, uh, the least um, pure title pure title match that I could think of. Like it, like even though they you know they did the rope break stuff. I feel like even if they didn't have those rules, the match would not have been that different. Uh, you know what I mean? Like they would have just taken out a few a few of the spots. Mm-hmm. But like it didn't feel like a quote pure title match. It just felt like a match between these two guys. And they did a lot of their um, their spots, and everything looked good. And it was fast paced, and it was exciting. Um, and you know, Aries, but you know, by the end, um, you know, both guys were out of rope breaks, and you know, at the end, like they were doing a lot of big dueling chants and. And Ares is sort of trying to get this this combo that he got to beat Joe, and he he gets most of it, but doesn't quite get all of it in succession the way he did. And Joe, you know, comes back with his flurry of slaps after Joe after he kicks out of the uh, 450. Um, and Ares goes back for a second 450, and Joe just pops up out of nowhere and slaps Ares and hits the muscle buster and wins. Um, I thought it was all action, and it was it was good, like it was quite good, but I just. And I think I probably enjoyed it more than the than the uh, anniversary show match, just because of the action. But I just don't think it had as much behind it as the other matches. So I did definitely didn't like it as much as their first match. Um, I um, the other thing is, you know, I feel like this is sort of before Aries really finds what he is after his title reign. You know, he's a babyface now mostly, although he does flip off the crowd at one point. Um, but he's mostly a babyface at this point, but he doesn't really have a character yet, you know? So it sort of is just kind of like Joe versus a guy, a guy who's like really good and over, but like, it's like, who is Austin Aries? I think Aries hasn't figured it out yet. So I think that took it down a little bit too, but it was definitely a good match, like a very solidly good match, just not something that, um, 
not something that's particularly memorable. I thought this was the worst of their three matches that we've seen. And I thought this was kind of Joe and Aries by the numbers. But I would still say these guys are so talented. Joe and Aries by the numbers, I would still say is pretty darn good. Like I would still say three and three quarter stars. And I I said on a recent show that Aries in 2005 so far to me is like the king of the three and three quarter star match. Because I would put so many matches of his from this year in that that exact ring where it's just a sliver away from being great, but there's something missing. But it's funny because and, and he has had to to, to be uh, clear matches in this year. I think would be great. Like I love the uh, the Punk title change. I think the first uh, ca- the cage match he has with uh, Cole Cabana is is a legitimately legitimately great match. But um, I, I think the funny the weird thing about this one is and a couple of those matches, even though I've been giving so every so many of this matches this year the same rating there's been a couple of them like this one where i don't necessarily think that's his fault because like i actually feel here and again it, it's a very good match i it's just it's a little disappointing we consider the talent of the two guys involved but i actually think aries was the guy bringing more unique stuff to the table on this in this match than joe i think joe was just kind of doing everything you've seen before i thought aries actually pulled out a few neat things like he's doing a little bit where he's trying to do joe's moves he's being cocky like he tries to do the uh the chest ki- joe's chest kick and then knee drop combination but joe avoids the knee drop later he does the stf to joe which is joe's move um aries does a really great missile drop kick almost like the colt cabana one we've seen seen recently where he's almost vertical when he hits it but this one he actually like then falls straight on top of joe into a cover which was really cool and i, I also i also like when he, i also like when he missed the 450 and landed on his ass that was fun. oh yeah that was a really cool too yeah, yeah exactly and you know, he even teases doing the Olay kick to Joe, and then he flips the crowd off, which which is funny because I feel like just like every show, Matt, I think toilet paper's thrown in, and then it, it you you point out that it isn't true. I feel like there's been four or five shows, and you haven't done it in this show, where you're like, Generation X, this is where they turn face, right? Their faces now. And then the next show, Ares will do something heel, which he does here, because literally he's like, he teases the Olay kick, and then he flips off the crowd. like, you're not getting it, which is such a clear heel thing. Well, that, well that's what and I meant. That's Ares, what I meant when he said I do, he doesn't really know what he is yet. Like, that, that's sort of what, I, what, I, yeah. what I'm getting at. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's such a weird... But I feel like he's kind of been that way the entire year. You know, it's so weird. Like, they never really had, like, a set... Every time you think, oh, he's supposed to be heel... He would kind of do something kind of noble, and every time you thought, "Oh, well, is he kind of turning face here?" He would do something like that, and you'd go, "Well, now I don't get it." But um, that'll get clearer soon. Um, but I thought the coolest thing Aries did in this match was he does the low pay, you know, the uh, the tope between the first and second ropes, but he actually does it to the ringside area over where the uh, a new ringside table is. So he actually has to fly over the table. And I thought that was really cool where he has to come with such force he, that he clears like an extra bit of distance to get to Joe. I thought that was really cool. But again, it's this match, it's just that I agree with you that it's a pure title match that doesn't fear, feel that much like a pure title match. It just like – I think you put it best where you point out the first two matches had were about things. Like the first match had that emotion that you'll never be able to recreate. The second match had some story elements to it. This match doesn't really have a hook. And I do feel like they were going for a little bit of a story thing at the end, and I feel it's the first match of two matches on this show that get kind of botched, because I don't know if you noticed this, but 
the one story that this match does have is, is a classic, you know, pure title story where, you know, late in the match, Aries hits the 450, the move he beat Joe with for the title, and Joe has one rope break left, and he's near the rope, so Joe gets the foot on the ropes, and it saves Joe. And then not long later, Joe gets the win. He hits the muscle buster, and if you notice, when he gets Aries in the muscle buster, he actually walks like back towards the turnbuckle a little bit more than he usually does with the muscle buster. And if you watch the pin, Aries keeps trying to get his foot on the ropes but he's like sticking out his foot, but he can't quite get it until after the pins count. And what I think that was supposed to be is Aries had already used all three rope breaks. So I'm thinking that Aries was supposed to get his, I could be wrong about this, but I think Aries was supposed to get his foot on the ropes for that. Cause then the story point could have been Joe beat him because of the pure rules. Like Joe, you know, when Aries hit his finisher on Joe, Joe had one rope break left, so he used it. When Joe hits his finisher on Aries, Aries has no rope breaks left, so it doesn't matter that he gets his foot on the ropes. And it would have been sort of like, yes, Joe beat Aries, but it's because of these special rules they've never wrestled against each other for before. But that's what my impression, I don't know if that was their intention, but I, I definitely got that impression. Which is sad, because I thought that would have been kind of like the neatest story hook this match could have had, and it doesn't really come off. But... And the announcers don't talk about it either because it doesn't really happen. So um, after the match, we join Gary Michael Capetta backstage with the ring of with the new Ring of Honor Tag Team Champions, the Carnage Crew. Loke says tonight isn't about the war they've been having with Dunn and Marcos. It's about the 11 years in the business he's been in, the 14 years in the business DeVito's been in, uh, the three years they've been in Ring of Honor together. And for once, it's all about them. DeVito and Loke are off to the nudie bar. But not before DeVito tells Gary that he's not invited. And Gary gives this adorable little, hey, in response. I like the idea that Gary thought he was going to get to leave the show in the middle <laughs> of the show to go to the nudie bar with Logan DeVito. The funny part is, being where I know, you know, where this show was, I think I know what nudie bar they were going to. Because I, <laughs> no, because I used to work like uh, right around there and I never went in. I swear I never went in. But I would have to walk by one like every morning to get to work. They were open, like giving out cards and stuff, like you know, little like flyers to get people to come in at like eight thirty in the morning every morning on uh, on Thirty Third Street. Who goes to a nudie bar at eight thirty? I I I I think people are more like leaving probably at that time. <laughs> I guess, yeah. Yes, it's uh, yes. I, I don't think that place is there anymore. Tom Feely, if you're listening, you know what I'm talking about, that place. Uh, <laughs> we never went in, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was thinking, you cleared your name. You were roping out another, a friend of ours. But uh, So that brings us he to He never went U- in. Europe- Tom's wife, he never went in, I <laughs> we swear. We just looked through the window. No, we made fun of its existence <laughs> together. That's what happened. So next we're up to the European Rounds match, a first in Ring of Honor history. Nigel McGuinness, who was escorted to the ring by his corner man for this match, uh, Ring of Honor student Smash Bradley, defeated Cole Cabana, who his corner man was Ring of Honor student Derek Dempsey. Uh, Nigel won two falls to one, 13 minutes, 45 seconds. Colt won the first fall with a what I would describe in 533 by pinfall and what I would describe is a sunset flip without the flip. He just kind of pulled him over. Um, McGinnis submitted Cabana to tie the match in 11 minutes, six seconds when he used a submission where he basically twisted Cabana's legs, almost like a Texas clover leaf while he kneed on his kneeled on his arm behind him in like a hammerlock position, kind of hard to describe. 
And then McGinnis won the match in, with the third fall. He pinned Cabana in 1345 when he sat down on an attempted Cabana sunset flip and just hooked his legs. So for you, for you that don't know the rules to this match, for all of you, uh, before the match, the rules are read by Bobby Cruz. He says it's eight three-minute rounds with the winner being decided by two pinfalls, two submissions, or a knockout. Pin Punches and kicks in the match are illegal. Wrestlers have standing 10 counts anytime they get knocked to the mat like a last-man-standing match. And breaking the rules results in a public warning, and three public warnings from the ref results in a disqualification. So kind of similar to the pure title rules in some respects, kind of a little bit different, mostly with the round format. So, Matt, this is where I have to get on my soapbox. I have thought about what I was going to say this match for a while because I have a lot of thoughts on this, believe it or not. So, okay, here we go. Um, You know, I don't think we're, you know, I think we give our honest opinions on the show because that's all we can offer. And, you know, we differ a little bit from each other and we differ occasionally from consensus, but we're not really a contrarian podcast. We don't really have crazy hot takes that are that different. Matt, there has never been a match that we have covered on through the years in 71 episodes where I have disagreed more with the consensus than this match. Because if you go online... The reviews for this match are like two stars or less than two stars. The Honorable Mention Podcast, our friends there, they did not like this match. The live reports from this match said this was the one match on the show the crowd did not like. Matt, I am here to tell you and to lay out this where I'm going to tell you, not only did I like this match, I think this is a great match. I would go four stars and feel almost chicken that I'm not giving it four and a quarter. I will tell you, this is my favorite match on the show. Uh, so I will lay out my case now, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, why I think this is the best match on the show and why this is a legitimately great match. Okay, first off, are the rules convoluted and kind of dumb? Yes. But I would argue one of the, the reasons gimmick matches are usually dumb is because the rules don't add to the match or the refs, the wrestlers don't even take advantage of the rules. Every rule in this match helps tell the story of uh, that they're going for in this match. And this match actually tells a legit story that is informed not just by the characters, but the feud. Because the story of this match is, one, Colt Cabana is trying to beat Nigel against his own game. He doesn't just want to beat Nigel anymore. He wants to beat him at the British style, which is why they're doing a European rules-type match. But, mo- but most importantly, this is the first match we ever see of Nigel's new character, in my opinion, that trickster Nigel we'll see for the next year plus. We've seen him turn heel already, but this is the first match where he's doing all sorts of cool, neat little, very cerebral, tricky things. And this match is just full of those things. And so going back to every rule in this match is used to tell that story of Nigel outwitting Colt and really having a million heel tricks up his sleeve. So for example, all right, the, the 10 counts, the rule they use the least. That one is only, Colt milks it at one point, kind of gets up like, hey, I'm okay. He just milks it to get a rest. So that's the one rule they don't really take full advantage of. But every other rule here, first off, um, between rounds, and a round can end either when the three-minute time limit or when a wrestler is um, loses a fall, they immediately go to a break where they go to their corners. I think they sit down on stools. Their corner men, you know, give them water, tell them off just like a fight or a boxing match. So 
at the start of every new round, Nigel has a new trick. One round, he takes the towel he was being toweled off with and he throws it at Colt's face, you know, to like distract him. Another one, when he's getting the swig of water, unbeknownst to everybody, he doesn't swallow the water. So when they go back in the middle of the ring to start the round, he spits it right in Colt's eyes. Another round, while he's sitting in the corner, he grabs the iron he always took to him to the ring in every match at this point in his career. And when the ref, Amelia's like, you can't have this in the ring and takes it away from him. The ref is distracted and he, and you know, he hits Colt with an illegal punch, I believe. So that rule helps his match. Um, the rule about the time limits, there's one point where Colt hits a big, uh, like, he does, he literally says Ariba as he does, like, the flying forearm, and he goes for the cover, and the time limit has expired, so they don't get to count the pin. So you use that to get the classic kind of save by the, the heel save by the bell finish. And, you know, the, the no punches rule is used here where, you know, there's multiple times where, you know, Nigel will go to throw a punch, you know, when the ref isn't looking and then Colt will get mad and throw a punch when the ref is looking. So all of that stuff, it's just so many, it's not one heel thing. There's so many little tricks like that. And it's just telling such a great, I love that it's, you know, I can see why people don't like this match because the rules are convoluted. This isn't a match about a lot of near falls or pushing the pace or a ton of really cool moves. This is about, this is super about telling a story and about person, these two people's personalities. But I love it because it's about these two guys, specific personalities. Like this is a match that these two could have that not everyone could have. It's, you know, it's about this new character wrestling, you know, a guy, he's Nigel's kind of new character is kind of the heel version of Colt, you know, where Colt's always about kind of having these fun loving little tricks where he'll be like, you know, look up in the air, or what's that? And then he'll distract a guy where Nigel's tricks are, is also kind of this trickster wrestler, but they're all heel tricks. And there's so many cool moments. Like there's even a moment in, in this match where, um, Colt gets Nigel in a half Boston crab and Nigel like taps Colt on the back, like slaps on the back. And it's not a tap out and, and, and Colt releases the hole because he thinks it's the referee telling him you've won the match. And it's just like Nigel does so many neat little tricks like that. And I just feel like I love the story of the match. I love how it plays into their feud too, because this feud's actually about something that it, so many feuds are just about one guy wants to beat the other, which yes, that's every wrestling match is technically is about that storyline. But I love that the storyline is actually about you know, Colt wants to be better than Nigel at Nigel's style. And he's wants to even try and, you know, in this match, he tries to even do tricks like Nigel. And I even love, like it's in four. I'll just find, I know I've been going on. I'll give it to you, but I just want to even say, I love that even the whole feud is informed by reality because like Colt really did in 2004, leave on his first tour of Europe and kind of fall in love with the European style and integrate that into his own style. And then after this match, there'll be a promo later where Cold is just like pissed off. He's like, I have to go away. I have to, I have to learn more. And he really does that. He spends the next month in like the UK and Germany learning more of the European style. So I just, I love this feud. I love this match. And I realize I love it more than probably anyone that's ever watched this match. Most people do not like this match. They think it's worse than average. Matt, I know I'm crazy. I think this is a great match. But tell me how crazy I am. <laughs> uh, well, I'm. I was very entertained by what you just said. Um, I. Um, uh, I. I don't want to be the party pooper. Um, so. Um, I like this feud a lot, too. Um, I especially love their match in Chicago, which had all the story that you are kind of ascribing to this match. 
And when I saw this match live, it really did not play well live. People were very confused. Um, you know, they, they liked the characters, so they weren't like shitting on it, but like it just people were not feeling it. I will say it plays better on DVD than it did live. And I don't think this is terrible. Like I remember this being a huge shit show live. Like just like what the what was that? On on v- DVD you can see what it was. Um and I think your review is going to get a lot of people to revisit this match. Maybe even including the wrestlers themselves. I don't know if they, if, <laughs> if somehow this gets to them. Um, because I know that they never really were big defenders of the match either. Um, but here's the thing. Um, all the story that you see in the match, it didn't come across to most of the viewers. And like, I don't see how you could take that as anything other than like, even if you like it, like, a bit of a failed experiment. Like, they certainly tried, and they certainly put, like, put a lot of thought into it. Um, but the rules were just too much for people to take in all at once. And, you know, this is the second match in a row where you have to stand there and listen to a, a big, long, um, a big, long list of rules, which didn't, I don't think, helped the, the match's cause a little bit. Um, you know, and the crowd's already chanting bullshit at the first warning, which didn't really bode well. Some of the stuff that you liked about it, I didn't love, like Nigel's tapping the back of Cole Cabana. I just feel like, well, that's, that's, like, that seems too easy. Like, all you have to do is tap the guy's back and he thinks he wins. Like, that just seems too, too easy. Like I said, I, I do appreciate the character work. I appreciate, you know, the comedy and the different ways they, they play on it. But the way, it just, it just didn't get any momentum. And, um, and the chicanery, you know, while fun, I feel like eventually they, they needed to transition into another gear to really take it to the next level. So while I don't think this match is two stars or below, I would say it is not the first or second or third best match on this show. In my opinion, I think, I think maybe the fourth best match on the show is probably closer to where it lands for me. I, um, I just think that it, it didn't do for the audience what it needed to do. I, 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 I agree with you in the sense of they had a lot of ideas and they really went for it and they, they put thought into the match, which, you know, a lot of guys, they don't put this kind of thought into a match and you, you do have to appreciate that. And the character work, you know, these characters do mesh well together. But I still think in just terms of how it came across, this is the worst of their series. Um, still not bad, you know, um, but yeah, I... I you know it will be interesting to see when people um, revisit the match, as you know they will, whether they see what you're seeing. Because maybe they will. Maybe you're gonna give this match new life as a forgotten classic, um, and uh, and this this show will be remembered for doing that. Hey, I hope so. Because you know I like it when people like things, but I I, I didn't see it. I, I just want to say this this match review has been a great example of just how sweet a guy like Matt's one of the nicest people I know where he sounded almost apologetic for like not having my crazy like sharing my crazy love of this match when I want to make clear again every, nobody else even likes this match like Matt you're 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 being not fair in your re-review of it you're being fairer to it than or not fairer to it but more positive about it than pretty much anyone like i'll even go to the live notes from the observer um Meltzer wrote 
that about the whole show, it was a super hot show for almost everyone except the European rules match. Nigel McGuinness beat Cabana in a European rules match with two out of three falls. Match said to be boring live as people didn't understand the rounds or the rules. A lot of the crowd crapped on. And I should note, we talked about how hot this crowd is. This is the only match on the show where I feel like the crowd's kind of like not in even yeah. odd, even though they still make some noise for some spots you can tell there a lot of the people aren't into it so yeah. i when you said like this match is a failure i can completely like well i personally think this is a great match i really enjoyed it i think it's four stars um I have to agree. It was a failure because a match, you know, for is meant most wrestlers are trying to entertain the masses. It didn't entertain anyone but me. And let me tell you, if you just entertain Trevor Dame, you're a failure. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, well, well it, you, I mean, it, it does. I mean, it, re, it truly did come off worse in person. Like, there's there's no doubt about it. Like, it came like it came off really bad in person, and I don't think it comes off really bad on DVD. Like, it's it's just. Awkward, I guess, is what I would say. But like, you can appreciate the nuances a lot more watching on on TV than you could live when you're trying to like make sense of what the hell's going on. Um, I, I, do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, this is this is a match where like I also think it's just more you know like yeah stuff that's more about subtle character work and things like that probably plays way better not live. You know, when especially with a crowd that's so revved up, I think probably. But, like, there's just so many things I like about this. Like, I didn't even mention things like I love that the first fall is is Colt winning with basically a uh, sunset flip. And then the third fall is him losing because he tries to do it again. But now Nigel has it scouted and he clamps down on the legs and gets the win that way. I, I love that Um, there, there's a moment where not, Colt goes for a sunset flip again in the middle of the match. And um, Nigel bridges out of a sunset flip. And so Colt, like, kicks away his arms because he wants him to fall back flat for the pin and Nigel's neck is so strong. He's just bridging that way. So Colt's like, what do I do? And he just punches Nigel in the balls. And I, I mean, it's just cute little moment. Like the match is full of just cute little moments to me like that. Like if I was describing what the story of this match is, you know, people sometimes say, Oh, you know, matches are great when they're like human chess, where it's like a real battle of wits. To me, this was almost like two guys that are really good at cheating at cards and it's like Colt and and Nigel were playing poker and Colt's like I have five aces I win the hand and then Nigel's like I have six aces I win and it's just I, two guys uh, oh go on now I guess what I would say is all of their matches are like that and the other ones don't have the awkwardness of the rounds and the confusion w- involving the rules I guess is what I would say but, but I, again, but I, but I but think I, even the rules w- add to that but I, but I realize that's probably my biggest disagreement where because i think most people the rules is what immediately gets them to turn off of this match like you were saying right from the start with you you pointed out where bobby cruz talked about the rules you can already hear fans being like this is fucking stupid bullshit but it's just too many rules like it was yeah. i mean i mean you know like I, ha- I wrote a whole paragraph of the rules like you know and i and i know dave Meltzer wants like you told me that he wants every ROH match in 2021 to have the pure title rules, but like, at least at that point, you won't have to read them before every match anymore. This one, I mean, I know you already said them, but it's like, there will be a three-minute rounds. Winner will be decided by two pinfalls, two submissions, or a knockout. Punches and kicks are not allowed. After being thrown to the mat, the wrestler has a standing 10 count to get back to his feet. Breaking the rules will result in an automatic disqualifications. Wait, a public warning. Three public warnings will result in an automatic disqualification. Like, he actually, like, messes up the rules the first time. Like, just the yeah. crowd is just like, all right, 
we we get it. There's rules. <laughs> like I feel like that was sort of the the way the crowd treated it live. Um, like I said, you could take it in a lot more on um, on video. But but I do think a lot of the things that you mentioned as strengths of this match is present in all of their other matches. Like, um, and so that's so it doesn't feel quite as novel to me as um, as it does to you, I guess. And I guess the one thing we also didn't mention is this is a match where we get another Matt Hardy interruption where the screen pixelates and we get a, we get a Matt Hardy promo where he goes, um, there's only one show left until he comes to Ring of Honor. Matt says he's a fan of Ring of Honor and that Christopher Daniels needs to prepare for a twist of fate. I, I guess the one weird thing about this, and maybe this was something that was more on the website at the time, but we've now seen, you know, Matt on two shows do these very short promos hyping up the Daniels match, but like we have no idea on the promos why he's wrestling Christopher Daniels. Yeah, that's you true. Know? Although with ROH, you know, they do just put random matches sometimes, so yeah. it's not that crazy. But the one on the interesting thing about the promo in this match is this was I don't know if you noticed this, the only time the announcers acknowledged it. Like the other times Matt the the announcers are like, wait, what what was that? And this time they're like, whoa, Matt Hardy versus Christopher Daniels? I can't believe it. So like that's a nonsensical thing too. Like why can they see his promo this time but not the other times? And in the world of Matt Hart, also it seems kind of weird, like, why does he have to hack into the show mid-match to get promos? Like, don't you think Ray Vaughn would have been happy to give him promo time? Like, yeah. he was a big deal right here. Like, the idea that he's, like, just, you know, on some pirate pirate band satellite feed, like, in his basement. Like, I'm going to hack in during this 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 match. This Nitro McGuess Colt Cabana match, everyone except one weird Canadian hates. And I'm going to get a promo in right in the middle of it. Like, what? But yeah. <laughs> anyway, um... We go backstage where Roderick Strong is in a very dingy part of the New Yorker Hotel, I would say. He's taping up his hands with his back turned to us in the camera. Uh, Austin Aries walks up to him and he puts his hands around Roddy's neck and traps and shoulders in a really weird, aggressive way. And Roddy at this point goes, what's up, baby? And I'm like, what? And then Aries gives Aries gives uh, Roddy a very quick and intense pep talk, which was really weird, where he's like, you got, you got to win the title tonight. Tonight's your night. Don't worry about Alex Shelley. Don't worry that I just lost a pure title match. He goes, tonight's about you. And then he slaps Roddy on the chest, and he puts his hands, again, really aggressively on the side of Roddy's neck, on each side of it. And he goes, are you fucking ready? And then from behind the camera, Gabe asks if they want to cut a promo. And Aries tells him to shut up. We've got more important things to do. And another thing I love about just beyond how weird this the, the energy of this promo was, Matt, was the night before – you know, the whole storyline was that, you know, CM Punk does like a 10 to 12 minute promo at the start of the show. And they keep announcing during the talking during that whole show on the last Ring of Honor show about how because Punk went into business for himself and took up so much promo time, no one can have the backstage promos they want. There's no backstage promos on this on this show because of Punk being so selfish. And isn't that horrible? And then tonight, two of the only guys to get backstage promos, Colt and Aries, I mean, there's one or two others, but they both are basically like, I don't want to fucking do a promo tonight. <laughs> Like, they're telling the guys, like, I don't want to do a promo. Leave me alone after they did the show before where the, the storyline was like, how dare Punk steal this valuable promo time from these wrestlers? They're pissed. That's true. Um, although I will say this. I, 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 I did. I like this segment. I think it had the, I think it, it, it hit the right notes for what they were going for. Like, you know, just Aries kind of getting, gotten Strong's back and Strong, like, kind of just being the young guy who's just sort of like, he doesn't totally know what to do with his energy, but he knows that he's going to make the most of it. You know, like, I, I, I feel like this is probably the best they could have done here. <laughs> 
I, I feel like the content was good. I feel like just the weird physicality and the what's up baby. <laughs> so what's up, what's up, what's up baby? You know, that's, that's what I say to you every time that we, uh, <laughs> that you answer the, the Skype call. But I did really like, um, no, I, I like the I like the idea of what they're trying to do with between like Gibson with Roddy and now Aries with Roddy. Like the idea that everyone that getting the title back in Ring of Honor and not letting Punk escape with it is so important that everyone when someone else gets a title shot, everyone's just like, yeah, win the title. Like like they're they're almost like giving up their competitiveness because the most important thing is just that any one of them wins it, which exactly. I do like that. How yeah. that puts over the belt. Yeah, puts over the belt, um, puts over the company, puts over that Punk is an outsider. Yep. Yeah. So I'll take the first shot on this match too, and then Matt, you'll get first crack at the main, big main event. So, um, this next match is the semi main event. It's Homicide defeating Jay Lethal by pinfall in 19 minutes, 12 seconds after he hit a lariat. And that lariat, first, what set up that lariat was, um, Homicide wraps a chain around his, uh, fist and punches, uh, Jay right in the back of his previously injured, uh, neck. So, Matt, we said you said earlier that there was a match that you felt like the crowd really factored into it. I said I had in my notes a match that I thought it was. This is the match I think it is. It, it, first off, before anything, is this the match where the crowd is just going nuts that you were thinking about? Oh yeah, and you know, as a live experience, even more so, which I guess I'll get to uh, shortly. This match, the crowd. It, it's weird because Homicide is always over in New York. But even by homicide in New York standards, this crowd is fucking nuts. I was shocked. This is like a, this is all not quite like a Kobashi or a Just Incredible debuts in Ring of Honor pop. Which again, go back to that episode. That is the metric with, by which I judge pops in Ring of Honor because Just Incredible legit got one of the biggest pops in Ring of Honor history. In wrestling history, <laughs> <laughs> this crowd is fucking ape shit for homicide. They, they, they there's just like this and. It, as opposed to just like one large pop, there's just like this energy and this like kind of you can hear just like a bunch of conversations and and cr- there's just this weird energy and buzz homicide has where he feels like the hottest wrestler in the world and they're just so loud for him the whole match long and as for the match itself like and oh I would also say it's funny because as over as homicide is the, there still is also a lot of people backing Jay Lethal like it's weird you would think a crowd this hot for homicide there'd be no one on lethal side but a lot of people are also still cheering for lethal there's lots of 50-50 dueling chance here but as for the match itself it's weird i could see this match people giving it 3 stars i could go see people going on almost to 4 i'm somewhere in the middle i think it's a good match but i think it's a flawed match um Jay Lethal, you know, really takes it to Homicide at first, and I liked, like, it, it's weird, like, the physicality of what he was doing early on had good urgency, like, he, his body language and the moves he was doing and brawling on the outside, it was like how he should be wrestling for a guy he who just injured him, who he dislikes, but his facial expressions had, like, no emotion to them. It was really weird, and it was one of those things where so often in wrestling we see guys where, like, they either... They they either don't have charisma or they have charisma. And Jay Lethal at this stage in his career was really weird where it was like he would show it sometimes and sometimes not and sometimes in the same match. Because I feel like this match, later in the match when he makes a big fiery comeback, it's a much better comeback than he had the night before. And he does show good charisma. And he's really screaming and playing to the crowd. And it's like it's weird. Like in the same match, you can see a guy where he goes from being kind of robotic facially 
to really playing it up well. And, and he was still a guy, you know, learning that part of the wrestling. You know, he had, I think he had the in-ring moves more at this point than a complete handle on the character point. And clearly we've talked about his promos too. Um, the match, I think, you know, you know, Jay Lethal controls early. Homicide really slows it down in, in the middle like he usually does as a heel, but which is kind of interesting because the crowd is still treating him like the baby face of all baby faces and just loves him. And then I think where this match will get divisive is near the end because the commentary talks about early on how this match is, quote, relaxed rules. And in the last you know quarter or whatever, it gets very WWE-ish where there's run-ins from – homicides nameless gang members one of them who is grim reefer who literally does a top rope move to jay lethal he does like a top rope sidewalk slam to jay lethal and it's just allowed um they bring a table in the ring and jay homicide goes to put lethal through the table i guess to get revenge for lethal putting him through the table the last time they were in new york but instead lethal reverses it to a to a top rope ddt through the table and there's a kick out, which is seemed like a shocking kick out for the heel to kick out of a move that big. And then Matt, I feel like the finish, there, there's a bit of a botch here because after all of that, Jay Lethal hits the dragon suplex and homicide as the heel in this feud kicks out of it cleanly. And it's, and, and the announcers then try to act like, Oh, um, you know, Julius Smokes pulled the ref out of the ring. But if you but if you watch the match, yes, Julius Smokes does pull the the ref out of the ring right before the yeah. three count. And I think Ted, just, Homicide, to, just to be pedantic, I think it was that other guy, the other random corner man that pulled the ref out. Oh yeah, yeah, you know, you're right. There is another for, for those who don't see the match. There's like multiple random corner men. One who is Grim Reefer. One who I can't identify. And of course, whenever Homicide is in New York, he has these posse members that for some reason the announcers will refuse to ever acknowledge by name even in this what he wasn't on this show but on other shows when it's monster mac a guy that used to wrestle for of our and they will never acknowledge any of them by name it's kind of infuriating but anyway yeah the guy pulls smokes out but homicide kicks out clean from the baby faces finisher and i i think it was he wasn't supposed to so i don't know if homicide just forgot smokes was going to pull or not smokes the other guy was going to pull the ref out of the ring or if he just got worried that the guy wouldn't but either way he does and i feel like that combined with him kicking out of the top rope ddt um kind of creates this weird environment where homicide kind of survived a lot for being the heel of this match but overall I, I I don't know if I liked all the bells and whistles in the last quarter of the match or not. I, I feel like I would give this match probably like three and a quarter, three and a half stars. You know, there were some slow bits in the middle, but the the I mean, it's weird. It doesn't feel like a Ring of Honor match, but I will say this, Matt. Through it all, I wasn't bored, and I do think the crowd was fucking amazing. But I almost feel like the crowd also was also the detriment because I felt like this crowd was reacting like this was like the most important coolest biggest match ever and almost made me be i feel like be a little harsher on the match than i would have otherwise because i was almost like the crowd is treating this way better than it deserves actually even though it wasn't a bad match but um what do you think about all of this well remember it's very hard for me to separate the match from my live experience because this was such a memorable live experience you know like there would be other shows with 
you know, more crazy crowds than this. But like to be there, like, is one of my first ROH shows and experience this. It's like, so I went to this show with a friend of mine who is not a wrestling fan at all. Like, really doesn't like wrestling. Like, not like he doesn't, he's not like he has like subtle interests, like, can get into it every once in a while. He just doesn't like it at all. He went sort of like because it was around my birthday and it was like, all right, this is a, a, fu- a thing to do with my friend for his birthday, you know, is, is go to, go to this show. And so the one person that really stuck with him after this show that he'll, that he would still remember and ask about was Homicide because of the way the crowd was reacting to him. Like, you know, he was like a folk hero. To this crowd, whereas like you know the rest of the show, like he couldn't care less. He was like, "All right, well, I guess that was kind of entertaining, but I don't remember it." Five minutes later, you know what I mean? Like he just is that kind of yeah. person. Like just doesn't like wrestling at all. But Homicide stuck with him. And the next year, we kind of did the same thing. We went to another show around the same time. Um, you know, he sort of just kind of went. It's like you know, all right, you know, it's something to do around my birthday. You know, with me and. Nice friend, you know, doing that, doing that stuff. But like, he still was like asking about homicide. He remembered homicide, you know, when homicide came out. He's like, oh yeah, you know, good to see homicide again. Um, this this match was the most memorable match live in a lot of ways, and yeah, because of the crowd. Um, so the extent that homicide was not treated like a total heel here, I forgive a lot because he wasn't a heel to this crowd. Like he was the. But the funny thing is, Lethal was not a heel either. You know, the crowd was not booing Jay Lethal at any point, right? No. Like, they, they, they loved Homicide, but they still liked Jay Lethal. Um, so it created this pretty unique atmosphere where they were just going crazy. You know, they were they were getting excited when he wiped his ass with the Red Sox hat. Like, they, they, just, they just were having a great time. It was interesting, though, you know, after the show at the Supper Club, that the crowd wasn't nearly as into Homicide there as they are at these New Yorker shows. Um, I don't know what that's all about, but... You know, Homicide just felt like this, the biggest superstar. Um, and, you know, I think maybe Gabe knew that um, it was impossible for Homicide to be a heel in Manhattan in this era, so it didn't really matter, you know, if he's kicking out of stuff because it's just like, he's the hero, it doesn't matter. Um, but um, the one thing I, I did find interesting, you know, about the match being relaxed rules, isn't that pretty much all Homicide matches? Like, he could just throw <laughs> chairs at people and stuff and nothing happens. Like, I mean, I guess they they did do some stuff with outside interference and, like, a fireball. He got disqualified. But it just feels very, like, based on convenience, you know? Like, when it when you, when we need it, we'll have to disqualify Homicide. But when we don't need to, he can do whatever he wants still and not get disqualified. You know what I mean? Um, but because of all that, this was my favorite match on the show. Not I'm not saying it was the best match, but it was my favorite. I thought it was the most fun to watch. It was super exciting. The atmosphere was chaotic. Um, homicide, you know, he brings out the fork, which I definitely did not expect when I was there. Um, Lethal's <laughs> blade job at first was really bad, and I think he must have bladed again. Uh, Gabe says this is the first time he's ever bled, so I guess I'm sure that's why. But by the time he does what seems like his third blade job, he has a decent amount of uh, blood coming down his face. Um, so I guess he, he gets the hang of it. But, um, yeah, it's just a bunch of, like, you described most of the moves. He just It's just a bunch of craziness and i and i do think lethal you know for whatever you say about his charisma he did show enough fire down the stretch that it it ended up being okay i do agree with you that the early part of the match was better than the ending um my pet peeve about the rottweilers in this era is the fact that they use these like guys that they don't name in these spots like if you're gonna have this outside interference just like commit to it and like it feels like a crutch because they don't have the havana pitbulls around anymore 
Um, yeah. so, the, so they just throw out, maybe like it's a way of homicide getting his friends on the show. But to just have like a random guy that we were never going to care about pull Jay Lethal out of the ring and have the Grim Reaper who the Grim Reaper who they can't even name, despite his very good name, um, um, <laughs> um, like interfering and Lethal can never get revenge on him. It's like if you're going to do it, just bring in guys that you want to stick with. You know what I mean? Like bring in guys that will yeah. actually be characters on the show. Like it's it just seems very lazy and like – you know, and I know this is a shitty way to insult something, but like indie in a bad way to just be like, "Oh, here's a guy doing a move." Like he's just a guy, but he did this move. You know, like it's—I don't know. It's—it also seems like you know it's a payday, but it seems a little bit disrespectful to the wrestlers too. Um, I don't know if they if they felt that way, so maybe it's not my place to say that. But I just feel like if you're going to do the interference, at least have actual members of the roster be the ones who interfere. Um, it just to me that adds more heat to things. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I I thought it was just such a blast. So I am very, I feel very positively about the match. I I don't know about star rating, but I enjoyed it very, very, very much. I I will say this is a rare match. I would say where like, I can see people having a wide range of opinions about the match itself, but I think regardless of how I feel, how you will feel about the match, I think everyone should watch this match just for the crowd reactions because I think you'll be entertained just by – you don't see crowds this hot this very often for one guy or you know a match like this. Like this is – even on a night where pretty much this crowd was hot for almost everything except the match I loved, um, this was a – I, this was hot even by that standard. It, it is it is worth watching even just for the crowd reaction. This probably ends up being the second hottest crowd reaction to any match at the New Yorker Hotel in 2005. And I think, hmm. Trevor, you know what I'm referring to. Oh, yeah. Homicide versus Jack Evans. Um, no. <laughs> Next up, we've got the uh, Ring of Honor World Title match. we got our main event. CM Punk successfully defends the title when he defeats Roderick Strong via pinfall in 26 minutes, 28 seconds, when he basically just reverses a Roderick Strong pin attempt into a quick kind of cradle of his own. He puts the feet on the ropes. Classic cheap heel finish. Um, Matt, you know, we had just seen this in New York. You had just seen this live not very long before this. This is the rematch. How did you think it stuck up, stacked up with that match? What did you think? You know, it's another uh, – Big heel, long CM Punk heel world title match. Yeah, it sure is. I mean, so first, uh, just some observations. Um, there is an extremely cool moment during this entrance. So, you know, in the fir- in the match against Jay Lethal, we had the dramatic moment where Joe came down to ringside to cheer Lethal on. We don't get anything like that in this match, but what we get instead is that since the New Yorker Hotel has a balcony, um, our three, uh, like, top baby faces, I guess, the heroes, Samoa Joe, James Gibson, and Mick Foley, um, watch the match from the balcony. And at the beginning, it's just Joe up there. And Punk, you know, given that Joe is his greatest rival, Punk has this immense stare down with Joe. Joe's like, his foot is on the balcony, like the railing, and he's just looking down, like, really sternly at Punk. And Punk sees him. He stands on the middle, uh, the middle turnbuckle with the belt posing as he enters, holds the belt up in the air, looks at Joe, taunt, they kind of taunt each other. It's just this, this great moment that, you know, could only have happened after all this history. Um, just, you know, a, a really iconic visual there. Um, the other thing is, here's something that just show, shows how insane, neurotic, and insecure I am. <laughs> I have this extra, so I'm kind of standing near the aisleway. Um, 
at this show. And I have this extremely vivid memory of when CM Punk comes out, like, he looks in my direction and, like, shakes his head. And I got this, like, real, like, like insecure moment where I'm like, oh, man, he's looking at me and he thinks I'm such a tool. And, like, I watch this entrance. And, like, they don't edit the entrance at all. They show his entire thing. There is nothing that he does that could possibly be interpreted that way that he's doing that <laughs> at any point during his entrance. So I'm like, I invented this whole scenario in my head of this wrestler that I look up to looking at me and disapproving. And, like... There's nothing that could even be slightly interpreted that way during his entrance. So is it safe to say this podcast has lifted a 16-year burden off your shoulders, <laughs> exactly. completely changing your life for the better? The, well, the first part. <laughs> um, <laughs> but like it just, just goes to show what, what a psychopath I am. Um, but more importantly, there is the match. Um, so again, they promote this as CM Punk's last night in ROH. And I do think that there was enough of us in the crowd that at, on the night, believe that was possible like it seems ridiculous looking back like of course he's gonna like wrestle all these guys that he's building up matches with but like like there was this feeling like oh this is his last weekend i guess he has to leave without the belt right um Mm -hmm. so because of that just like with lethal because of that people thought roderick strong could win and in any other circumstance that's not possible right like there's no way that anyone would think that roderick strong at the level he was at at this point would possibly be the ROH yeah. champion. But the crowd really did think it was possible on this night. And that, I think, takes the match to another level, just like it did with Lethal. Um, you know, and that's what makes it, you know, you asked to compare it to their first match. There's a lot of similarities. Obviously, there's a lot of differences, mainly being the fact that this is for the title and the heel and babyface roles are completely reversed. But also, it adds that level of emotion and drama that the first match didn't have. Um, the similarities involve um, Punk trying to avoid Strong's chops. And, you know, they, they really take that to another level in this one. Like, they really milk that for a while in this match. So Punk avoiding chops, and not just avoiding them, but, like, running away every time he avoids a chop. Um, and, and, you know, and Punk maybe hitting his own chops, or doing eye pokes, and, like, you know, all that stuff. Um, so when Punk, when Strong finally hits his first chop... It's you know it's a big moment and and the crowd um, and the crowd goes nuts like it's uh, we're basically Punk tries to leapfrog Strong and Strong just kind of avoids it he just stands there and then when Punk lands he wails on him with a chop and then it's like Chop City and they do like boo yay chops and stuff like that and and um, Strong dives onto him on the outside and chops him against the guardrail chops him till he's bleeding from the chest. Um, like literally bl- blood's coming out of his chest and so and the crowd's chanting break is back and so Roderick's already doing very well as a baby face um until punk hot shots him over the top rope and then punk comes back in control and you know punk's taunting the baby faces in the balcony pointing at joe saying i built this place it wasn't that son of a bitch and he's really slowing things down and working over Roderick and the crowd's in the palm of his hands and they do more Booyah stuff and Punk's hitting his own backbreakers and really slowing things down with like chin locks and stuff. And then he does something which I don't know if he's done before or since. I guess he probably has in other indies, but at least in ROH, which is he does the Ric Flair, Shawn Michaels literal showing ass spot where, um, where, um, uh, Strong is trying to pull Punk into a sunset flip and he pulls down like the backside of his trunks. So, 
Punk's ass is completely exposed, and he's doing a bunch of spots bare-assed, including being press-slammed off the top rope until he gets his thumb in Roderick Strong's eye. Let me ask you something. If you were a wrestler and thought to do this, wouldn't you be scared that like the rest of your trunks would fall down? Yeah, I, I would be scared to show anything ever. Yeah. Well, so, uh, yeah, no, you're not. You're not even going to show like your knees. Um, no, you're very, you're very humble. Um, I can wear like a 1920s bathing suit for my wrestling attire. I, I don't want ankles is the most I'm going to show. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so. So once Punk pulls up his trunks, that gets gives Strong a chance to get the double knees, the sick kick, and that's you know the crowd's super into it at that point. You get some big near falls with like a drop kick, Uranagi backbreaker, um, and you know then you get to the point where there's a lot of reversals, like the half Nelson backbreaker, and Punk reverses that into an O'Connor roll, and then Strong kicks out, and Punk immediately hits a shining wizard, and then Strong kicks out of that. So Punk goes for the Anaconda vice, and Strong rolls him up for for two, and then. Um, Punk hits a super kick and a swinging DDT, and when he gets the Anaconda Vice, the crowd goes crazy. You know, Strong makes the ropes, he gets the good pop. Um, And Punk climbs to the apron very slowly and goes for a springboard leg drop, but Roderick moves, he locks in the stronghold, and the crowd is chanting, tap, tap, tap. Punk makes the ropes, you know, does a few more of his signature spots. Um, Punk charges at Strong with a forearm, but Strong catches him with the half-Nelson backbreaker, then another backbreaker, then a pump-handle slam. And this is, in some ways, the biggest near-fall of the match, but I think they kind of telegraphed it too much because Punk rolled so close to the ropes that like, there was no way he wasn't going to get his foot on the rope in that spot. Um, and that then Strong immediately goes for the O'Connor roll. Punk reverses it into a roll-up of his own, grabs the ropes, and gets the win. Um this was a really good match, and like, I I think I like the Lethal match better because I love the drama of the finish with you know with Joe and like Punk just like staring at him with the choke on, being like a total dick. And I thought this finish was just sort of like a sneaky heel win, like just much more typical. Um, but here's one thing that you can't deny: this was a a moment for Roderick Strong. This was a moment where there was a before this match Roderick Strong and an after this match Roderick Strong, much more so than with Lethal. After this match, Roderick Strong is a star that people can see at the main event level, and there's no going back. Um, within a few months, Roderick Strong is regularly main eventing shows. In some ways, for he has a run as like almost a bigger deal than Aries. In fact, um, in the Danielson matches with Strong and Aries, it seemed much more plausible that Strong would win the title than Aries. Um, Strong was like considered like a next big thing type of guy, and I think this match was the moment that it happened. And whatever you think about this match, you cannot take away that this was a match that made Roderick Strong. It really, really did. Um, if you look at everything that happens this year for Roderick Strong after this match, as we'll get into over the next few months... This was a huge turning point for him. And you can thank the scenario. You can thank Punk's performance. And I think Roderick, you know, he held up his end of the bargain. He did great. Um, Like I said, I still think the lethal match is a bit better, the lethal Punk match, because um, just the booking and the finish, and I think Punk was just, he just, Punk was just having quite a night that night. Um, And I don't think he was quite there on this night, but in terms of the impact, this match had the greater impact, I'd say by far. Um, first off, Matt, you don't tell me what I can and can't take away from someone. I'll take away. No, no, I seriously, I agree with you, um, about this being an important match for strong, but I would actually say 
This was my second favorite match of the night. I actually do prefer this to the Jay Lethal Punk match the night before. Um, I think much like the night before, you can Punk's just having a great time and he's just in his glory and just loving everything. But to me, this it's funny. This match felt kind of a little bit like a throwback and Punk's always had a bit of a throwback streak in him. But this felt almost like the modern 2005 version of Punk doing like the Ric Flair touring heel champion. This feels like punk wrestling, like the young up and comer. He's the world champ. And his job is what Ric Flair's was going to every territory, which was wrestle like the up and coming star from the local area, make them look like a million bucks, make them look like they all were so close to winning and that, Oh, he'll get them next time and making the, and leaving, even though you've won, you make your guy, you wrestle like a bigger star on the way out than they were coming in. And it, I felt like it's a match that does the story of their last match, like you mentioned, where so much of the match is about Punk avoiding chops. But I feel like this match did it way better. One, because the face-heel rolls being reversed, I think, fit that story better, where this time, rather than Punk avoiding the chops because he's clever, he's avoiding them because he's kind of a cowardly, shitty heel. And even the way he avoids the chops, like in this time, he like there's moments – like the story of this match where – the one flaw, one flaw I had in the first match these two had, even though I really liked that match quite a bit, was um, Punk would like avoid the chops for the first third of the match, and then when Roddy starts chopping him, the rest of the match Punk goes like fifty fifty with him in chop exchanges, and it's like, well, why are you were you so scared when you're like even with him on chops? And in this match, Punk spends the first third of the match like chopping like. Roddy, and then immediately at some points, he literally some at sometimes just runs away like a complete coward. Like he's just such a little prick. And then when Roddy finally does start chopping him, like Punk doesn't get many licks in back. Like when when Roddy finally starts getting to chop this guy, Punk sells it like, oh shit, you know I'm in trouble if this guy's getting to chop me and I can't compete with those chops, which I think is a way improvement. And yeah, Punk really just leads Roddy through this match, and it's really old school in the sense of, you know, and I can see, again, some people might not like this, but I really, I, I appreciate variety, and, you know, this is the kind of match where Punk, like you mentioned, will literally slow down the match multiple times in this match, he'll just throw on a chin lock. When Roddy starts getting control of the match, he'll just poke Roddy in the eyes. It's a very kind of like 80s match in that way. You know, the end of the match is just him reversing a, a pinning move, and getting, you know, holding onto the ropes, which is a very, like, a- almost an- purpose. It's, it's purposely anticlimactic in the way the kind of old school wrestling finishes are, where, yeah, it's kind of a cheap finish, but it's supposed to be cheap. It's supposed to make you pissed off that, you know, he won in such a shitty anticlimactic way. And, you know, if someone was looking for this to be more of your, what you imagine Ring of Honor to be in 2005, like it's going to end with six minutes of near falls of the most, you know, fast-paced cutting-edge moves it's not it's it's um it's kind of an out of nowhere fuck punk screwed this guy over and he's like rolling out of the ring and laughing about it ending but i i really like that and um I, I I really like the story. I like the idea that, you know, Punk extends it to he's not just avoiding chops, but like he's also doing he at one point he does a backbreaker to Strong. He's like, this is how you do a backbreaker. And again, he avoids Punk, uh, Strong's backbreakers. And then when Strong finally does get the backbreakers, he hits him with like three or four of his big variations. And again, it, it just seems like I'm going to, you know, kill this guy with my backbreakers. So my flaws in this match would be one. 
even though I really like that's a bit more reserved and old school and throwback, this crowd was so hot. Part of me was like, man, if they did do two or three minutes of hot near falls, would the roof probably just would have gone even a level higher in in terms of how it just getting blown off the the roof, getting blown off of things. But my main flaw in this match was it's a criticism I've had in with Punk in the past. And I haven't really noticed it in quite a while, so maybe he's gotten better or I just got immune to it. But it really rears its head here, which is Punk is the most obvious spot caller that I've ever seen in terms of wrestlers where I've seen more obvious spot calling from wrestlers who I literally either hear them say it or see their lips move. But in terms of guys where I don't hear them say it and I don't see their lips move, there's not a more obvious spot call in the world. And he is horrible here at it. There are so many times this. Oh, go on. I was going to say, that's why he um, gelled so well with John Cena. They they both have that in common. (laughs) Yeah, and, and there are so many times in this match where Punk like throws on the chin lock or something, and even though you can't see his lips moving, you can see his head bobbing, and it's so obvious. He's leaning right into the guy's ear. You can see like Roddy's eyes go blank as he's listening, and then immediately let's go. They do a spot, you know, and then a couple a minute later, chin lock leans right in. No, 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 no. They do a spot, and it, it is so obvious, and it's it's weird because you know Punk is such a talented wrestler. And to see a guy that is so talented and have this one, like, just glaring flaw where he's just terrible at it. And um, it, it, it just kind of takes me out of the match. But I still really, really like this match. Still my second favorite match on the show. But, boy, this is a great example of how bad he was at just hiding like calling spots and it's funny because I, I i when i wrote my notes like i was like you know punk led strong through this match and a lot of times you know people go you know who is responsible for this match and i'll go well i don't know i'm not a wrestler i wasn't involved you know who led this match because you can literally see punk call half the goddamn match to strong like he's calling a lot of the spots and yeah. you can tell that yeah and i mean, um, just just for the record i like the lethal match more but like I think I still probably liked both of them more than you because I I put them both at like four stars. Uh, this is boring four stars. I mean, I don't think I'm much lower than you. I, I you know I do like the Nigel Colt match a little bit more because I'm weird, but I really like this match too. And I do think both those matches have something in common where they're both far more about telling a story than about just trying to be the most pulse pounding action every second type match. Although going to what your point about the Nigel match, this match is far more successful. This is accessible to everybody in that building. The Nigel Colt match was accessible only to Trevor Dame. So like <laughs> this match was a far bigger success and going to, you made great points about even how it brought Roderick to another level. I think it was a match des- where he did a great job of making Roderick look like he was on Punk's level and making Roderick seem like a guy whose offense is something to be feared and, you know, could destroy him and, yeah, really enjoyed it, and um, just I'm just looking over things. Oh, another moment I really liked in this match was um, at one point, um, Punk and he's pro- this probably wasn't an wasn't an intentional comeback, but I love on the last show when he faced Roddy, he did that big speed promo where you know the fans were like, "Please don't go" and stuff, and then he leans down and he kissed the Ring of Honor logo in the middle of the ring. And this match, you know, they're back here in the same scene of the crime, same city rematch, and now Punk is the heel. And at one point, he starts tapping on that same logo in the middle of the ring, and he goes, "Come on, Roderick, R O H, 
ROH. And I'm sure that that probably wasn't intentional, but I thought, oh, that's such a cool little callback, you know, where literally a couple months before he was kissing that logo and now he's wrestling the same guy and he's just being such a patronizing dick. Like, oh, isn't this great ring of honor? I, 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 I thought that was just great. But, um, oh, other than I want to mention too. Sorry, Matt. Um, the, 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 the ass spot you were talking about, oh, referencing like flair and um, Michaels, who obviously did this earlier, but I bet you he's referencing Chris Candido because Chris Candido was his friend who had died recently, and he did that spot in like IWA Mid South and probably a lot of places. In fact, I think when he, I think he might have done a spot, he did that spot in IWA Mid South. I think in a match Punk was in, where he wrestled for like two or three minutes with his ass out. So having Candido having died a few months earlier, I bet you Punk probably thought, you know what, I'm going to work this into a match in the future. I'm going to wrestle with my ass hanging out and he does not do it as long as candido did but he definitely wrestles for a while with his ass out um yeah just really 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 enjoyable match so um well i'm just looking over something really quick uh i i the other thing you mentioned really uh the crowd shot which will be the picture of the show, because uh, you mentioned that earlier, it should be, and it absolutely should be, where Punk is on the corner posing, and it's got this great camera shot where Joe is in the balcony, like, right above him, and he's just looking down over Punk. And later in the match, we hear that, like, James Gibson and Foley have joined Joe on the second floor balcony. But there was one moment I liked where... um. Um, Punk during the match points to Joe in the balcony, and I think he says, I built this place, not that fat son of a bitch. And you can hear some fans of the crowd be like, Ooh, he called him fat. And I love that that's like the taboo thing here. Like, and especially knowing that these two guys were like really good friends. The idea that, oh, like, I wonder if Joe was like, You asshole. It's fat. Li- like, 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 people call, like, people weren't allowed to call Hulk Hogan bold, uh, bald back yeah, in yeah, the 80s. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like the, 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 the unspoken secret everybody knows like oh man he called him fat not um, to, no, no not brian danielson fine. brian danielson does that even more blatantly in a promo in the next like year or so i i vividly remember that <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah there will be a few people that call him fat but it's kind of funny that like no one really most people at this up to this point did not call him fat and punk who's his good friend finally is at the point where he's just like this fat son of a bitch i built this place not this guy but after the match, Gabe, who has been, like you mentioned earlier, who has been on commentary for the last two matches, goes, you know, what now? He's like, what do we do now? Because I guess we should mention Gabe has been hyping during this match that this was Punk's last show in Ring of Honor. And just like he kind of was for a while on on the previous show, he keeps hyping, you know, this is the last show for Punk. You know, if you know doesn't happen here, he's running away with the title. Uh, Praise X says Punk leaves Ring of Honor with the title. Uh, Strong throws his hands up in disgust because, you know, Punk just cheated to beat him and he leaves the ring. He's just sickened by this. Um, Punk celebrates on the outside of the ring. Green Lantern fan, you can hear him say, I really, he, he, he's screaming at Punk to sign a picture at this moment and Punk just ignores him. Um, Punk grabs the mic and he tells the crowd to never doubt someone that is better than you. He says he'll be the only undefeated Ring of Honor champion in history. The belt belongs to him. He's leaving with it. Say goodbye to the champ. And at this point, James Gibson charges into the ring. Punk flees into the crowd. The crowd chants, run like a bitch at Punk. Uh, Punk does, in fact, try to run like a bitch. He listens to the crowd. He uh, tries to escape through the fans. But Samoa Joe is there in the back of the building, and he chases him back to the entranceway where Mick Foley appears behind him. He strikes Punk with punches. 
Punk at this at this point, Foley and Joe throw Punk back into the ring. Gibson is in the ring. He tries to hit Punk with the Gibson driver, which is just the Tiger driver. Punk counters him, but Gibson is quickly able to hit him with it. He almost doesn't really – he almost stumbles having him when he's doing it, but he hits him with it. He goes for a cover. Mick Foley makes an unofficial three count. Uh, Gibson grabs the Ring of Honor world title and poses with it. Some fans at this point – you know, and they've been on Punk – all night as a heel, but you can hear some fans in the ch- in the crowd chant, "You're not the champion," at Gibson. And then Gibson grabs him and he goes, "You're right. You know, I'm not the champ, and I might not be the most deserving man for a title shot." But I, but he, then he's at this point he stands over Punk. He goes, "If you won't have any guts, you'll bring your ass to the Ring of Honor show next week, and you'll wrestle James Bah God Gibson, the Redneck Messiah." I think and, I think the reason for those "You're not the champ" chants. I'm just remembering like being there. There were again a lot of us really thought at this point it was possible this really was Punk's last night. I think after this show, people realize like, okay, like. He's definitely staying until the Midwest. But, um, like, so they thought maybe, like, is ROH really going to do this to try to say that Punk lost the title? Like, Mick Foley counts the random pin. So I think some people yeah. were just making sure, like, all right, you're not actually going to try to get away with this, are you? Like, I, I think that was more what it was. Yeah, I, I think some fans would – I think – yeah. I mean, you were there. I wasn't. But I get the impression that if they tried just to do, like, an impromptu fully count – win on one move the fans would have shit on that as much as they probably would have loved to have seen a title change yes they would, i don't they think would you guys would have accepted that. I, I, I can yeah. verify that would not have been well well taken <laughs> but um the observer reaction to this there's a little interesting things here uh dave wrote cm punk didn't lose the ring of honor title over the weekend as he beat jay lethal and roderick strong in matches that weren't announced ahead of time he's back on the july 16th show in woodbridge connecticut against james gibson which may be the title change being that gabe sapolsky believes gibson right now is as good as anyone in the business it's not a lock as punk has no start date in ovw or wwe right now but those things change on a dime and they are going to play this angle out as long as they can so it is interesting that you know Dave was completely fooled. I mean, everyone was. I mean, Wade Keller was too, that like this weekend was going to be his last night. And you can see it's starting to evolve a little bit where Dave's like, well, maybe the next show will be his last one, but maybe not. So he's starting to get a little more hip to the nature of what this program is going to be. Although it is funny that, like, you know, he is right about James Gibson, just not on this show. Yeah, I, I, then- I really, I really do think that most us of us who were like following it closely figured it out at that point when, you know, yeah. when, when they looked at the schedule, like, like, all right, you know, like maybe not everyone was positive it was going to be Gibson, but I think most people probably guessed that it was going to be and that punk would stick it out to the Chicago show because it was just a few shows away. And it's just like, and now even Dave's reporting, like he doesn't have a start date. It's like, all right, I think there would be, it would be shocking if he didn't make it to, the Chicago show. So I think, like like you said, this weekend, they fooled us. I think after this, the fooling part stops and people just kind of are along for the ride and enjoying the storyline. Especially if you watch both shows this weekend, if you were there live, you know, or just read the, the, the reports, it's like, it's clear Ring of Honor is teasing a Daniels match, a Gibson match, and some kind of match with Samoa Joe. And so it'd be really weird if you left only do, it would be weird if they teased three matches and only did one of them, you know? Right. So I think at that point, once they've started to tease a few matches, I think you, you know, he has to be around at least long enough to pay off those matches, which is exactly how long he is around for. So exactly. Um, 
The Observer, they also wrote in The Observer, Meltzer said, Foley ended the show cutting a promo, including making hilarious references to Punk and OVW. He put over the Ring of Honor wrestlers, saying that almost everything he saw on the card he couldn't do, except what Homicide did by, by using a fork. So this is a promo he must have did after the show. We do not get to see this, but must have been like a Foley send the crowd home happy type thing. But I got to see it. Uh, ha 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 ha. Were there hilarious references to Punk and OVW, Matt? Um, there were references. <laughs> I mean, was there, like, how, how funny can it, like, even, front. even, even if you tell the funniest joke about that, how funny can it be, right? Yeah, exactly. And so we go backstage where Gabe is chasing Colt Cabana around with a camera. He wants that promo from him. Colt is mad. He's annoyed that people are hounding him, asking about Punk and his problems. Colt is sorry if Punk is doing drastic stuff right now, but he has nothing to do with that stuff. Colt says he has his own problems. He thought he could beat Nigel tonight at his own game. He announces he's off to England. He has a lot to learn. And he walks away as the camera zooms in on an exit sign on the wall. And again, like we mentioned earlier, this is actually, even though it's part storyline, Colt is gone for the next two shows. He is in England and the Germany for the next month. So again, I love that kind of stuff that they're working in real stuff into the into the storyline. Yeah, I mean that's they, they ended the match with the hottest match of the night. You know, like go, go call him back to it because everyone loved that match so much. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, now, um, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know I do. I do think that you know, it's good that they you know that they figured out a storyline reason to explain Cabana's loss, and they also do a good job of capitalizing on it when he comes back. Yeah, and that's something Gabe would often do where it's like if a guy did lose, he would often try and find a way to reframe it as like this is just the start of his comeback. So, yeah, exactly. It's like, yes, he lost, but it's okay because he's going to come back having learned even more stuff. And he's going to be a better version of himself and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, Matt, that brings us to the end of the show. Uh, second half of this double shot, very hot crowd. A lot of you know stuff going on that we talked about. Well, how does how does it all add up? What did you think about the show as a whole? Well, before I talk about the whole, I do want to say one thing about the punk storyline because obviously I love it, but they really put a lot of care into figuring out how to get punk to come from Long Island back to New York. They did not put as much care in getting him to come back to Connecticut because with that, Foley was like, "You better come tomorrow, or else you know Vince McMahon's going to be mad." Whereas this time, it's um, Gibson's just like, "If you don't come to Connecticut, you don't have any guts," and it's just yeah. like, "All right, that's easy." But I guess you could argue like the the Vince thing is like a standing thing, like Punk can't leave with the title; he has to do business. As stupid as that is, like you know, conceptually knowing Vince, it's uh, it works, I guess, for the storyline. But you. But you are right because even the next show, they will end that match with a very big cliffhanger to give you a good storyline reason why Punk should come back for the next show. And this is the one show in this string where, yeah, you're right. They don't yeah. really have a – like if Punk really wanted to screw the fans over, there's no reason for him unless, like you said, you just extrapolate what was on the last show that Vince McMahon will be so pissed if Punk doesn't keep defending the title. But Right. Um, as far as the show itself, so this was a big deal show for me, like just personally. Like this, this is the show that got me hooked in ROH, like especially that Lethal Homicide match. But the whole vibe in that in that building was so amazing. And at this point, I was just going to go. Like you know, I had only been to shows in New York. They this was so since May. This was their two fifth show in the state of New York in two months. Basically, I think less than two months, actually, their fifth show in the state of New York. And I, I think they're they're not coming back for a couple months after this, finally. But um, 
so the, the fact that the crowd was as hot as it was was really impressive. And this was a you know a huge big deal show. That said, I don't think it holds up quite as well on DVD as the live experience was. There are shows that do, so it's not like it's always better live. Like, I mean, it is maybe maybe usually better live, but it's not always as much better live as it was for this one for me. Like, the, it, I, I guess. I think this was a good show. There was some stuff that I didn't think was so great. I definitely didn't really like the four-way that much. I, unfortunately, did not feel the way you felt about the European Rounds match. And I think that it doesn't feel as memorable in comparison to the last show we reviewed, Sign of Dishonor, just because Punk's performance on that show was so legendary, like, just as a one-night performance. You know, he was great on this show, but, like, on that show... It was just like, oh my god, you have to see CM Punk on this show. And I don't think this was that because, you know, he didn't get the promo time or the angles or, you know, telling the story. And, you know, like I said, I liked his match the night before slightly better. This was still a really good sh- like show in terms of, like, good stuff. But I don't, th- I don't think I would have it in the top tier of, sh- of shows from 2005 at this point. Um, I think maybe it's like one level below that. Um, so a good show, but I don't think it was a great show. See, I do kind of think this is a great show. I, I, I like the show more than you, and obviously probably me thinking one match was great that everyone else thought was one of the worst matches on the show probably really explains a lot of that swing. But, you know, I think the crowd was a special crowd that really added to my enjoyment of the whole show. I think other than the four-way, which isn't far from it, I think everything on the show was at least three stars, like at least good. And even the four-way had its moments, but it was overall a little below that. But still, and I, there was, a, you know, a lot of stuff that's really enjoyable. I really Even, you know, even if the Aries-Joe match wasn't quite on the level of their other matches, a bad Aries-Joe match is still pretty damn good. Really like Punk Strong, really like, obviously, Nigel Colt. Um, you know, homicide lethal is just a spectacle to see on so many levels. And, but where I will agree with you, it's weird. Like, I think as a wrestling show, I really enjoyed the show a lot, but it is the first show in like the summer of punk storyline. If we consider it now three shows old, like I completely agree. This show does not feel special the way the last two shows did, you know, cause obviously death before dishonor feels special because of the title change and people thought it was punk's last match and the turn. And then the show, you know, sign of dishonor felt special because it was kind of a different format wise. And it was the first time, well, we don't know who punk's facing and you had the long promo to start with and all this stuff. And this show, it does just feel more like it's just a middle chapter. It's just kind of getting from point a to point C and it's not really, yeah, like like we even mentioned earlier about how even like even Punk's promo on this show is not as substantial as the promos on the last two shows. And so in that sense, I would say from a storyline point, it's not as good as the last two shows. But from I just think a work factor, you and the crowd were did a really great job there. Give yourselves a pat on the back. I thought and, that and, and, really and Punk did not express disgust for me like I thought he did. Exactly. Although, to be fair, I also thought you were hard on yourself there, Matt, because, like, let's face it, on the list of things to assume, like, a wrestling fan assuming that Punk gave them a dirty look at some point is a, probably a pretty safe assumption. Like, you know what? If he didn't do it on this show, he probably would have done it on another show, Matt. That's true. Although, you know, in my head, it was not like him being a heel. It was like a genuine, like, this man is disgusted <laughs> by me. <laughs> Again, a safe assumption. Yeah, well, 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 well definitely. Like, I mean, he, he would absolutely be disgusted by me if he saw me. That's that's a fact. 
As as would all of you. You are a handsome, charming man. There are way, you are in the top, like I would say, five percent of any wrestling crowd you are in. But <laughs> <laughs> I like that gets a laugh. Uh, with that being said, time for plugs. If you want to get in contact with that charming man or this not as charming man, uh, through the years at gmail.com, T-H-R-O-H, or our Twitters at Trevor Dame or at Mayor M-G-F. Uh, we have a thread on the Pro Wrestling Only plug section. A fan recently wrote a long, very insightful post giving their thoughts on the show, and I made a reply. So, hey, you want to read public feedback like that? Get some extra thoughts from me. It's up there on a post on the Pro Wrestling Only forum plug section. Um, next time on the show, we will be covering Fate of an Angel, the middle chapter of the seven-show stretch of the summer of the summer of punk. Matt Hardy finally comes to Ring of Honor to wrestle Christopher Daniels. Uh, Samoa Joe defends the pure title against uh, Jimmy Rave. And the main event, we got a big world title match, James Gibson versus CM Punk for the world title. And we finally Lots get Joe covers. Gagne back. I am so happy that our, oh my our, God, our podfather no. is back on the show. Oh, God. I'm, I'm happy about it. <laughs> okay. Well, I will, even with that sort of Damocles hovering over my head, we will try it to have a good time. And until next time, have a great time. <laughs>